Welcome to Rolling Studies. This is the podcast of the Hogwarts Professor. My name is Nick Jeffrey. I'm a writer at Hogwarts Professor, and I am joined today with Dr. John Granger, the, the Hogwarts Professor himself. Uh, it, it, it is funny, Nick, when you say you're a writer at at uh, Hogwarts Professor. I, I love that. Uh, yeah, we, we have a, a, a pretty small staff of dedicated writers here, Evan Willis and Elizabeth Baird-Hardy and, and Nick. Um, but what a fellowship it is. Uh, so this is our second uh, episode looking at the whole canon of Rowling's works. Today is a Christmas-themed episode, so we're recording this actually between the Eastern and Western Feast of the Nativity. This should be released before the new year and we are going to be covering the christmas pig yeah i hope this is an annual event discussion of the christmas pig i know you feel this way nick i hope our listeners will as well that this this may be the most important single work that Rowling has written and um it certainly deserves repeated visits and explorations there's no way we're going to talk about everything you can say about the christmas pig in a single podcast anyway let's jump into this i can't wait This is a seasonal episode, so we are recording this in the Christmas season. This uh, should be going up on the website before the new year, and we will be taking a look at the Christmas pig. And John, what a joy it was actually to reread this. So this is my first reread of uh, Christmas pig since it was uh, published, what, two Christmases ago? Yes. So this would be, I think this would be great to make a, a, a seasonal podcast or a seasonal exploration into, into what must be one of her key works, certainly in recent years. Yes. There's, there's, when people ask me what is Rowling's best work, I'm, I'm, coming, I'm coming from the Shed perspective. And from the Shed perspective, Rowling's best work is uh, Deathly Hallows. So, I mean, because it, it, it brought all of the Hogwarts saga together in a spectacular finish um, and it and included so many key elements, you know, the alchemy, the ring, everything was, everything was brought to a, a great climax in Deathly Hallows, um, a book that could have been the greatest disappointment in literary history <laughs> turned out to be a triumph. Uh, and that was also a great relief to me, as you can imagine. But anyway, that, that uh, after that, I think Troubled Blood has to be considered her her next best book because of um, all the things that it does, especially with this stuff with Spencer and the Fairy Queen that she basically retells that in the model. The structural stuff, the structural RC there was unreal. Um, then Christmas Pig, and Christmas Pig, maybe more than Deathly Hallows and Troubled Blood, I think, because. It's, it's so much briefer, it's so much more a crystallization of everything that she does, and it doesn't have any dependent parts. Like you, you really can't understand Deathly Hallows without the previous six books. 
and you in, in, in that series, and you can't really understand the genius of Troubled Blood, I think, without the context now of, of both the books before it and the books after it. I think it qualifies as, as really the pivot of the 10-book series, and it's and maybe it's maybe it's simply in contrast to just how bad I think it Black Heart was. But that Christmas Pig as a standalone is the book that I recommend to people when they they say I, I don't have much time. I, I've never read J.K. Rowling. You know, I I I really have this prejudice that she's little better than Enid Blyton. What can I read to introduce myself to what you who you think is one of the most important authors of our time? And I I, I say Christmas Pig. One, it's funny. Yeah, there's 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 laugh out loud moments there. Um, there's but there's engagement. There's you're you're right there with the story. There's all the intertextuality or literary illusion that you could possibly want. Um, but really, there's there's the four levels of uh, imaginative experience and story of you know, really of knowledge uh, that Rolling hits with her symbols, her hermetic artistry. I mean, it's from the shed point of view, this is the peak. Now you're you're the lake guy on staff. What what is what is the lake guy? You know, think of is, is it is it in the top five of of rolling work in terms of of uh, in ter- in terms of uh, life illusions. You know, I I talk about life and literature as as, as the, the the two two big inputs into Rowling's inspiration, which is is her lake. And in terms of life input. Certainly in terms of self-avowed input. So what Rowling has herself said, this is this has come from my experience. This has come from my life. All of the things. Um, th- this this is her most biographically indebted book. Even more than Casual um, Vacancy. In terms of what she has herself admitted, yes. I, I think what we can infer, no. So ca- Casual Vacancy is... is her unacknowledged autobiography. I mean, I mean, so so much certainly seems to have come from her life and her experiences with, within that book. I think less so in Christmas Pig, but but it's also on a different scale. You need to look at the tiny things. You need to look at the the lost habits. You need to look at the lost items and think about where that fits into the into the jigsaw of her life you know she's she's mentioned so much she's mentioned um the blue bunny she's mentioned the, the earrings in in the acknowledgements which john as you know when i judge a book i, I go to the acknowledgements first and if it's a really good set of acknowledgements i know i'm in for a good book in the acknowledgements she she, she has she has said you know the, the, the all of the the inhabitants of the land of the lost all of those things in capital letters that they are they are they are mine they are my family's they are our possession yeah and Fa- fascinating book the beginning and the end of that acknowledgments page is so important uh, in christmas pig and if you've got your copy you can flip the back it ends with the all of these illusions um, are of course intentional meaning and it was a joke in that Usually you would say accidental or meaningless, you know. Instead, she she said, "No, no, no. Those those are all deliberate plants that for my my family's laughter." Um, the but but the beginning of the acknowledgement page, she mentions a dear friend of hers from Porto, 
Ain Keeley. Ain Keeley, um, who lives somewhere in the Basque region. You know, she's somewhere in in eastern Spain. Uh, yes. So I think I think currently in Spain. And she says there that at really at a at a de- sort of desperate point in her life, her friend reminded her that Christmas comes every year. Um, and the whole whole Christmas thing. We'll talk about this more, you know, in the podcast. You know, a, a key moment in Rowling's life is that she was married on Boxing Day. She was married the day after Christmas in 2001. Kind of a pivot in Rowling's life as a person is you know, a successful marriage. She begins to have other children. and, and um, But th- that Christmas wasn't always, well, how, how, do, you, how do you take that, that passage? Do you think that Christmas was a great solace to her or that she was at a bad point in Christmas and that she's going to have another chance at it? I mean, what, how did you take that, that paragraph in the acknowledgments? I took it, and again, you know, it, it needs to be an assumption. But um, following assiduously, as I have Rowling's tweets through the years, Christmas is an important time of, of year for her. So I think that's true. And I think, I think when, whenever Rowling is in a tough spot, I think she, sort of like conjuring a Patronus, she tries to think of the happy thoughts, and one of her happy places is is Christmas, is is the nativity. Um, so I think I think what Ayn was was uh, alluding to there was it doesn't matter how tough it goes, you know, every year there's going to be a Christmas. That's great. <clears throat> that's great. I, that's that's uh, it's resonant with the. Uh the C.S. Lewis story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the, the misery of Narnia under the White Queen is that it's always winter and never Christmas. All right, this, this is great. I, I, we, had, we had a previous show before this that uh, we, we, we did get some feedback. It was good feedback. Um, one of the people who wrote, who's, again, forgive me, I, I don't have her name right in front of me, but she, she said that she really enjoyed the podcast um, and she hoped that we would do recordings of the longer posts because the Hogwarts professor posts are too long. And well, she didn't say that. She's, point, point, she's talking about your your post, John, not mine. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I plead guilty to that. Um, and you know, I get it because a good friend of mine likes to listen to podcasts while he walks his dogs. So I, his dog, so I, I, um, we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to record the posts and either, either put them up on the podcast channel, the Rolling Studies channel, or we'll, we'll put them up as part of the Substack piece. So you can just click on that or download it. Another, another feedback came from our partner in crime here, Patricio Tarantino, our, our good buddy at uh, the Rolling Library. Which you know, it's not it's not the sisters' site. We can't tar them with that brush. But but uh, we, there's 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 a fond relationship there. And Patricia just said, John, don't make this hard for us. Get this thing on some podcast distribution platform so that we can actually download it. We don't have to sit in front of our computers or carry our phone around with us. So yeah, we're gonna do that. We're gonna. We, I've I've already tried to get onto Spotify and and. Uh, what a Luddite. I really have no idea how to get on these things, but I, I, we're working on it. And so, Patricio, stay tuned. We're going to get these things on that so you don't have to listen to us that way. 
so th those are the those are the that was the two big pieces of feedback was, was we're, we're loving it but you're making it hard for us and you know report some more of these things we're gonna do that we're gonna do this um, one of the things that nobody out there knows is that Nick Jeffrey actually predicted the existence of Christmas pig when Nobody else knew this thing existed. And it happened on the moderator channels. You know, it happened on the on the email exchanges between the the fellowship of Hogwarts professors. And um, Nick just flat out predicted that there was another, after the Ichabod came out, that there was another story out there, a children's story that was coming out. And I remember thinking, wow, there's there's predictions and then there's just madness. I mean, this, this, this was like, the man that I think it was what Uranus, the the planet that he actually looked at asteroid trajectories and found movement that predicted that there was something of a certain size that was exerting gravitational pull, and then looked for and found a planet um, from that kind of bizarro mathematical you know, that this asteroid shouldn't have shifted like that that that. The, you know, in the absence of this thing, it sh that, that couldn't have happened. So there must be something there. And there was something there. I thought, wow, Nick has found a planet, you know, a whole book that no one has talked about. Actually, actually let's be frank. I thought you were delusional. I, I, what, is, what is he doing here? You weren't, you weren't, you weren't the, the only one, John. <laughs> yeah. nobody, was calling me, nobody was calling me Mystic Nick on the back that, channel. That's right. <laughs> and, until... Yeah. Until that that header came up of the plush pig snout. Wow, and, and we were all like, "Wow, he's he's done it. He's predicted this thing." So I mean, <laughs> this being the holiday season, somewhere between Western Christmas and Orthodox Nativity, and the traditional twelve days of Christmas, we're gonna we're we're talking about our shared favorite of Rowling's work, the Christmas pig. Um, I, I do want to get back to how you didn't mention how Inkblack Heart is is a is is a is a lake favorite. But anyway, anyway, this this book checks all of the lake people's boxes. You know, I, I want Nick to tell us the history of this book. Um, this was the novel you predicted was out there the way astronomers yeah. you used to identify unknown planets in the solar system with nothing but gravitational effect on asteroid drivers. How, how did you predict that the Christmas pig was out there in the stratosphere? So I need to I need to go back a, a year before Christmas Pig was was published. Um, so this was the summer of of twenty twenty. It was a pretty horrible and frightening time for most in the Western world. We were in the middle of COVID lockdown. I think pretty much the whole Western world was in the middle of COVID lockdown. But it was a wonderful time, John. <laughs> it was a wonderful time for rolling obsessives. There you go. <laughs> Because uh, Rowling had broken her Twitter silence. She was out engaging with fans. She was giving us insights into her biographical history. Uh, if you cast your mind back, we saw a photograph of the flat she had in Camden, London. Uh, we saw a photograph of the tree that she came up with wand law uh, underneath. Uh, fabulous tweets. She had released because she, she recognized that, that uh, families with young children were struggling because there was no school. Many of them were living in, in small apartments without a garden. Um, she released Philosopher's Stone digitally for free 
so anyone could download it to, to, to read to their kids. She, along with other celebrities, were reading chapter by chapter Philosopher's Stone. So essentially, there was also a free audio book out there. Um, and then uh, she announced the Ichabog. So the Ichabog was the almost fabled political fairy tale that she was she was talking about really all the way back 2006 she hadn't finished Harry Potter yet she was talking about well the next thing I'm going to publish is going to be this political fairy tale um, she mentioned it in uh, a year in the life and then everything goes quiet I think it was a CNN interview finally interviewer managed to pin rolling down on well what about this political fairy tale um, and it turns out that uh, a few years before in 2015 she had used that manuscript to create a dress for one of her famous parties and the theme of the parties was personal nightmares and her personal nightmares was going to be the lost manuscript and she turned this manuscript into a dress we have a photograph actually now we have two photographs of it it really is a stunning creation uh, but she wasn't going to publish it she decided she was not going to publish the Ichabod it gets packed away into her attic and uh, it sort of becomes the rolling family story so she read it to her kids it's part of their shared experience but it, it's a private family story she's going to dust it off take it took it down from the attic worked with her publishers to get it into a publishable condition and then she released it as a serial so the whole world got to enjoy this book at the same time chapter by chapter and we discussed it as each section came out it was it was an absolute joy kids around the world were creating artwork for a competition so everyone had the, the opportunity to see their own painting appear in the published work a magical time and then our own our own little socratic gadfly <laughs> within Hogwarts professor said wait a minute Hogwash. wait a minute this is Hogwash this is PR washing this is Rowling regenerating her appearance by coming up with this story she was always going to publish the Ichabod and to be fair if John had found a convincing evidence to that so on her website this was the 2018 Q&A on her own website. It says, I've just finished the fourth Galbraith novel, Lethal White, and I'm now writing the screenplay for Fantastic Beasts 3. After that, I'll be writing another book for children. I've been playing with the non-Harry Potter Wizarding World story for about six years, so it's about time I get it down on paper. Oh. <laughs> It's a lie. Well, there we are. It's a lie. Well, there we are. <clears throat> there we are. Far from being hidden away in her attic, from 2018, she's been working on this kid's story, and now she's used COVID as an excuse to boast her own philanthropic image, and we've been hoodwinked by this major celebrity. What a cynic. But, what a cynic this guy was. Well... We all know J.K. Rowling cannot be entirely trusted when it comes to dates and sequences of events. This is not a strong suit 
within Rowling's armory. We know um, numbers. She can have trouble with numbers. For me, the, the dates just did not add up. In an interview, I can understand maybe things get mixed up. But for this story, she's talking about playing with it since 2012. Well, this was exactly the point in time that Ronin had pretty much abandoned the Ichabod. That's right. So this story that she's been working with between 2012 and 2018 could not have been the Ichabod. And if it, that means if it's not the Ichabod, there is this other children's story out there. And that's what turned out to be, to my, to my everlasting relief, turned out to be... <laughs> Uh, the Christmas pig and and when it arrived wow so I don't think there has ever been another book where the newspaper reviewers have picked up on some of the shed work so the newspaper reviewers picked up on Divine Comedy they picked up on Pilgrim's Progress is that unique, John? I, I can't think of an, a, another rolling book that the newspaper reviewers have got anything other than just entirely surface reading. Well, uh, Deathy Hallows, you saw some of that, but that was because there had been so much work done already. Um, there was final acknowledgement that there was a lot of Christian content in the Harry Potter series with Deathy Hallows where it became really unavoidable. Um, I mean, there was just, there was so much resurrection you know, material inside the story that that they got it. But it would be as if when Philosopher's Stone came out, people started talking about the alchemical content inside the book. That didn't happen, Nick. I, I've got the scars to show you no. that that didn't happen. This this whole story is. I, I'm sorry. This maybe this maybe this is just throat clearing to our audience. You know, they're just like get to the interpretation of the book, will you? Yeah. But I you know I, I want to. I, just, just for a second here on your date. First of all, congratulations. No one's ever done that. Maybe no one will ever do that again. Predict a, a rolling book out of the sky and it appears in the, in the heavens. Yeah, that, that was that was a real achievement. And obviously, I, I, I get to be the, the idiot here on the ground saying, ah, you know, and, and I'll, I'll take that role. I, you know, I, I <laughs> uh, but this, this book is important to serious strikers. She says that she really started working on it in 2012. And 2012 is when everything really happens. It's, it's, it's the publication time for casual vacancy. And it's, it's really, she's at the, at, the, at the heart of her time of planning the strike books, which begin to appear in the, in the next couple of years. That 2012 nexus, I think, is, is uh, and I, we'll have to have Evan on, the, on Rolling Studies to talk about this. He has a theory that um, the strike books are in parallel with Harry Potter, not only through the first seven books, but they'll be in parallel with Rowling's works in the last three books as well that we're going to see strike eight is casual vacancy, strike nine, the Ichabog, and strike 10 will be the Christmas pig. So that if you're a, you know, if you're a serious striker, not so much a Potter pundit, and you're thinking, why, do I, why am I listening to a podcast on Christmas pig is that this book is because it was really conceived in 2012, was conceived when Rowling was working so hard at the entire arch of the story for Cormoran Strike. That the Christmas pig 
is the parallel point for the end of the Cormoran Strike series. That may be a real stretch for you. I don't know if you, if you know about anything about tetractus theory and such, um, but it's brilliant. And I, I, we, we really do need to have, have um, Evan on, Evan Willis on to talk about his geometric understanding of the strike series and Rowling's works. Uh, but yeah. I, th I think that would be great, John. I, I think, and if there are listeners that haven't read um, Evan's Tetractus posts, um, do it now because it, re it really is exciting. It, it's, it is uh, a little bit far out there maybe it, it, it's a stretch but it's a theory and it's a theory that importantly makes the seven book series and the ten book series fit that's right it's um that little bit out there thing that's that's kind of the uh, every time that i've had a hit with with ro ideas about rolling things the initial response to every one of those ideas be it literary alchemy be it the christian content the christian symbolism be it um, the parallel series idea, the first response of readers is always, ah, oh, no way, John. You know, you just, you know, there's no way she's writing Shakespearean, you know, alchemical work. You know, it's just not happening. And then the evidence builds up and you're there. That, that's kind of the thing. When I, when I first saw that pyramid, that Tetractus pyramid, I was like, ah, you know, really? But then Running Grave came out and I think you really do see that, that, Five and six is probably the center of this of this ten book series. Um, it's very exciting stuff. Um, I want to I want to go back a little bit to the acknowledgments page. I think it's on the acknowledgments page. He talks about how the book began. The five Murrays at the beach. That in itself is quite exciting. So Rowling has been extremely successful in shielding her family from the the public. We know, although I wouldn't term it a blended family, we do know that. Of course, Rowling was a single parent, so it was uh, a two-person unit of herself and her daughter Jessica. Um, Rowling then remarries Dr. Neil Murray, and they have two further children. And this is the first time that I think the whole family has been described as the Murrays. Certainly, I had to work at that a, a little bit as well. So the five Murrays, could I place Jessica within those five Murrays? We, we know that, that uh, Neil has a wider family, some of which have the surname Murray, so it could have been the four Murrays and an in-law. Um, but uh, she gives a special thanks to the logic-based questioning of Deck. Uh, yeah. Deck. Deck is an abbreviation of Decker. Decker is the nickname for Jessica Mitford originally, but now also Rowling uses it of her daughter Jessica. So, so in, in terms of how Rowling sees her family, they are the five Murrays. That's, and that's, it's hard to overstate how important that is. Um, if, again, if you're a serious striker, you may have noticed that sibling issues predominate in the strike books. And, and now we, we've, got, we've got seven known crises in Rowling's life. You know, six are public record, have been the subject of her own comment, reader discussion. The one that has not been part of the public record, but which is evident in the strike series, and especially in the Christmas Pig, is 
what you've been talking about here, Nick, her second marriage and her subsequent blended family. Rolling, again, much to her credit, ferociously private and protective of her Murray identity and the family so little is known about her husband, their two children, how they all get along, and how Jessica Arantes, Decca, the daughter of Rolling's first marriage, who was separated as a child by court decree from any contact with her biological father, fits into the Murray clan. As, as we mentioned, the Rolling Murray wedding was celebrated the day after Western Nativity 20 years ago. Plus, so there's an obvious link beyond Rowling's confession of, of the same in the book's acknowledgments and interviews between that holiday marriage, her blended family, and this Christmas story, you know, and, and all the sibling tensions inside that. I think that Rowling was celebrating in, by 2012 that there were five Murrays. Yeah. Um, but that she was also acknowledging that crises, okay, that, that, uh, the union, the Murray Union, as as we're seeing it reflected in the strike novels, Christmas Pig, really has not been a Disney movie without significant struggle or conflict. You know, the, the strike novels are largely about male and female roles in light of vocation and the difficulty of a woman taking what has been traditionally a man's role as her vocation while remaining fully feminine. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's no great leap to speculate that the Rolling Murray marriage has had to contend from its start with the elephant in the room of the global celebrity billionaire wife being the primary provider in the public face of the family rather than the husband. Rowling's heroic and sacrificial stand against you know, this mad overreach of transgender activists and their supporters has largely been, I think, the fruit of her study and reflection in light of that struggle on the roles and identities of men and women as such. You know, respecting biological reality and the boundaries while acknowledging, respecting, and nourishing the masculine and feminine aspects in each person. That, the Christmas pig, differs from the strike series in that it reflects another Murray family issue. It, Christmas pig has as its foundation story the agony of a young child in a blended family whose biological father is absent physically and emotionally and whose older stepsister is a bully consequent to her own issues about daddy. You know, this the serious reader of Rowling and one even superficially familiar with her life does not strain his or her eyes to see David and Mackenzie Murray and Jessica Arantes here as the story models for Jack and Holly. Uh, the ages don't quite match up. I think I, I think I've made mistakes about this, but it's 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 doggone close. You know I, yeah, and and I think I think the that Holly, as depicted in the book, seems older than her eleven years. You know, she's she 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 appears to be the the archetypal stroppy teenager rather than a precocious eleven year old. So I, I think you could be forgiven for thinking there may be some um, biographical allusion in that. Um, I, I'll pick you up as well. You mentioned Jessica Arantes. Now, this is a common error among my fellow rolling <laughs> obsessives and uh, tabloid journalists. So there is a young lady, Jessica Arantes, yeah. of about the right age. This this young lady is a bikini model, and she has she has taken credit for. Uh, congratulations to Rowling for her daughter getting engaged and congratulations to Rowling for her daughter on the birth of her first grandchild. This Jessica Arantes is no relation 
uh, of J.K. Rowling, or, or in fact her ex-husband. Um, lovely young lady as she as she is, uh, this is a, an entirely erroneous uh, connection. We don't even know though. We don't, we don't know if if you know what Decca goes by in public. We don't know if she's no. if she's Jessica Arantes, Rowling, Murray. What she? We, we don't. Do we know her legal name? No, we we don't we don't know that. Uh, we know we know of only one photograph, uh, and this was before she was a teenager. That is in the public domain of Jessica Rowling, and that's pretty much all we know. We can infer uh, five, five Murray's uh, comment that she goes by um, something Murray. Um, it, she could use Jessica. She could use Decca. She may, she may have a professional name that she goes by, uh, but we know so so very little about her. I don't know what the name Decca actually refers to. I mean, I've got, I've got the Jessica Midford biography on my, my wall here, which says you know it, the title is Decca, but I, you know, it, it is funny that the Strike Book is a ten book series and Deck is is clearly a, a you know a Greek reference to ten. Maybe this is really about this this family agony. Um, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go deeper into this though. You know, that, that Rowling dedicates the book to David, her son, and she's explained in interviews that the story toys, the cuddly pig favorites replacement, they reflect two such cuddly pigs that her son adored. Jack Jones, however, is a name front and back that is a form of the name John. Okay, that's that's Jack and Jones both come from John, and um, he is. This Jack Jones in the story is Joe Ann Rowling more than David Murray. Her name also derived from Johannes, the Greek word for John. Um, and Rowling has given her daughter Mackenzie the middle name Jean, the more obvious feminine form of John. I mean, to put all my allegorical and sublime symbolism cards right on the table at the start, you know, what Jack has lost in the story is his father. What Holly fears losing to her stepbrother is her father. The pig is the exteriorized heart or love he has as token or what, what, what Rowling has called the transitional object of maternal unconditional love. And the story of the loser is the sublimated agony of separation from dad experienced as a child hero must in the world of things and language. Okay, the, the Christmas pig, in addition to this psychological allegory or dream journey is an anagogical tale of seeking communion with the Father in heaven through the light in one's heart, this Johannine theology of logos love that permeates Rowling's work. I mean, that, that's and that's that's a that's a big thing here. Uh, but but it's I think it's undeniable. We're going to talk about this. It's going to be a large part of this conversation. But the big thing here is that from the lake that I'm getting is that Rowling has embedded in her stories as their common conflict, kind of the kind of the golden thread that goes through all of her work. And that's what we're about here, right? We're, this is the 2054 perspective, is that golden thread is the tension between Peter and James and John, you know, between the exoteric and the esoteric, between the law and love, okay? And there's also her in this in Christmas Pig, we get her Dante-esque self-understanding as a writer, what we also see in Harry Potter. And we see the, the means and ends of her story as and this is this is a tough one. Hold on, folks. As her as extra liturgical sacred art. 
Okay, and that's that's the best way to understand her work. Um, this this includes not especially opaque references to that kind of artistry in all of her stories and Christmas Pig especially. I mean, it, I, again, I, I'm jumping into your lake question here <laughs> to talk about uh, shed elements, but there's a blend here. I mean, you, you can't get Peter and John without getting the whole Peter rolling, Peter John rolling um, aspect of her life. You know, the death of her mother, you know, she's named both for her father, you know, Peter John, with the, with the Joannes and also for Anne because it's Joanne like Diane you know there's 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 this blending here between masculine and feminine everything is in this book and yet it comes out of you know rolling self-understanding um, wow I, I again I'm, I'm jumping the gun here I know but I I, I just love you know this <laughs> this this part of the story I think it's also it's the format of the book that allows her the freedom to be that open about it. So this is a fantasy, you know, in, it is a, a, an allegory. There you go. Um, <laughs> completely open to, to allow that, completely free reign to, to draw on her life illusions, her literary illusions, uh, and all of the structural work that you, you talk about. She isn't constrained by there having to be um, a procedural formulaic as per strike. She she isn't constrained by uh, the fact it needs to be a series, as in Harry Potter. She can be as open as she wants to. She has has the freedom in this format to do it, and I'd like to see more of it. Well, that I mean that and that leads to the whole Dante element, right? I confess, I I read <laughs> Christmas Pig straight through, and. I got a few hints about the divine comedy element, you know, the three cities and stuff. And, I, um, and I'm, I'm into Dante. You know, I, I, I was the guy who broke the code in, in Harry Potter about Snape as Dante and his, his death scene being speaking right straight from the end of the purgatory. I mean, I, I'm into it. But this, what you're talking about, nobody, you can't read Dante today without notes about, you know, basically, you know, 13th century Florence. And and Dante's life story, because there are so many life elements inside the Divine Comedy. Right? I mean, this is really his his personal agony going through. He's meeting people from his own life, his own life experience, inside, you know, the Inferno and Purgatorio, etc. And that's really, I think, how you have to read Rowling's thing. But Evan Willis blows this open. I mean, Evan Willis, really, the, the, I think it was the week after Christmas Pig was published in October, all the stuff that I wrote about Christmas Pig was this time two years ago. I had a couple of months to really dig into the structure of the story, lay out its, its you know, its, its ring, do all that work with the symbolism. I, I, was, I was really in the throes of my PhD at that point. I totally rewrote my PhD in light of Christmas Pig and Troubled Blood. Um, it, it was, it, you, talk, you described it earlier as, as a, as a, as a, as a uh, a great time for those those who were rolling obsessives. Well, it wasn't if you were writing a PhD because she was she was giving you way too much information and new <laughs> material. But Evan Willis, I'm, I'm just going to read really what he wrote about Dante's Divine Comedy, which is you know in addition to all the biographical detail, all the lake material, if you the lake of fire you get in in the Inferno from Dante's own life is is the shed artistry that I mean. 
uh, Beatrice Groves, the queen of literary illusion in Rowling's work, talks a lot about the Velveteen Rabbit and such. But I think she did. She went there not only because she wanted to talk about you know stuffed toys, <laughs> but because Evan Willis had already done the Divine Comedy. She taken the taken the big prize off the table in terms of literary illusion. And I'm just gonna again. I'm just gonna read. I, I don't. There's what nine, ten points here of correspondence. But again, this is all, all Evan Willis. Um, he, he writes, the Christmas pig is structured to a surprising degree of detail after Dante's Divine Comedy. At point one, after the loss of a beloved Beatrice or Der Pig, Jack Dante enters the land of perdition sometime around Christmas Easter, where he is accompanied and guided by Christmas pig Virgil through the various domains of the land of perdition, described in contrast to the land of the living. After a few not-so-bad upper sections, they arrive at the city of Dis, or Disposable, which has a foreboding entry message. And I want to note that that entry message, you know, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. In Dante's, you know, hell, or Dis, is the pointer to how the, the function of hope much later in the story, right? That we're going to start with Dis, and we're going to end up with hope. Anyway, continuing back, back to Evan. Continuing through this land, Christmas pig Virgil is far harsher to its inhabitants than Jack Dante is. I mean, you remember Christmas pig basically beating up Lunchy, you know, in disc. That's, that's very Virgil-esque, you know, kicking the heads of people in, in the inferno. Anyway, the ruler of the land of perdition is the loser, Satan, who eats some of the inhabitants. Having gone through the worst of it, the run-in with Satan loser in the depths of hell, or in this as Christmas pig, the waste of the unlamented, they eventually make it out to an upper land surrounded by water, which is purgatory or the city of the mist. It's a region filled with the sound of carol or hymn singing. Ascending from the city, Jack Dante ascend to the borders of the Isle of the Beloved or Heaven, where Jack Dante finally sees Der Pig or Beatrice, only to realize somewhat belatedly that Christmas Pig Virgil is no longer with him. Whoops, you know, we lost our guide. I mean, led to move beyond Der Pig or Beatrice to a greater love than retaining him or her would have meant. Jack Dante is guided further on by St. Nicholas, you know, Santa Claus in the story, or St. Bernard in, in Dante, into a mystery of love represented by a vortex of circular motion and white light. Throughout, throughout this journey, Jack Dante has talked along the way with numerous inhabitants who give him knowledge of the land of the living, Jack Dante would not have had otherwise. And this, this further explains the division of the book into nine sections. And, and Evan basically said, I'm going to let John do that. Um, God bless him. But, but again, I, lake and shed time here. You can't read Dante without all of the lake material. And as, as you've demonstrated, um, really, you know, Nick, you can't read Christmas Pig or Rolling in general without understanding her life story. You know, and, and in 2054, Rolling scholars are going to be talking about all we've learned about Rolling's life. I mean, here we're, we're, we're uh, because Rolling has been so good, we don't even know her first daughter's legal name. You know, I mean, she's been real good about shielding her family. Um, we don't know that much, but we know logical things. I mean, obviously there's there's there were sibling issues or you wouldn't get this book. Um, anyway. Evans, Evans laying out the Dantean structure, which is the alchemical structure, made it very easy for the shed readers to get enthusiastic about pig. But, but this is a favorite of lake readers too, right? 
it's not casual vacancy, but you've said it's it's top three for her, right? I mean, that, that this yeah. that, that this is autobiographical writing. It, it is, and and as this, as I've mentioned, it's the most self-avowed autobiographical writing. So so that just briefly, for, for me, the big three are casual vacancy, which is um, the Rowling's life story from birth up to 2007. Um, so many um, facets of her life, particularly uh, growing up in, in the small village of, of Tutsell, close, close to, to Chepstow. Then there's the Ink Black Heart. And the Ink Black Heart is uh, a bang up to date experience of rolling with the fandom post 2007 uh, to date. Um, and I think that's undisputed. So people who have read um, the chat logs, who who've, um, studied some of the personalities within the fandom, all of this is drawn upon uh, is drawn upon her life experience, is drawn upon real life. But for this book, for this book, the very founding principle of this little pig stuffed toy, we've known about it for years. So so. Never mind Mystic Nick discovering this in 2020. We had a photograph of this toy pig on her original Harry Potter website way back in, you know, 2004, certainly no, no later than 2006. There was a, a little beanie pig on the desktop. This was DP. This 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 was David's infant toy um, there. Uh, she's mentioned it on Twitter, so she is very close uh, friends um, with a, a lady, Jenny Colgan, who who writes romantic literature and recently has brought out a series of children's books uh, about a puffin. Her child had a toy puffin that was lost at an airport. She tweeted out an appeal, can somebody please reunite my child with her puffin? And Rowling responded, we've got one of those. We've got a, an, a, an irreplaceable, dirty, smelly toy. We've got one of those, but ours is a pig. So this is, we know about this pig. This, this, this pig has happened. She's alluded to it in the Fantastic Beast uh, series of films so if you remember the speakeasy in new york in that first film was the blind pig right so uh, that so almost certainly her pig was called bp right because tell, tell about the surgery the blind pig yeah so so um the the, the this toy this pig was so loved as children tend to love their toys it was falling to pieces um the eyes uh, used to have plastic eyes. The eyes had come out, so the the pig was essentially blind. Now, Rowling's sister, Di, uh, is a qualified nurse, and I'd like to think that she was involved in the rehabilitation of BP <laughs> of the blind pig, uh, because there is a photograph that she showed of uh, BP. Uh, in bed with bandages round his head, 
little chart at the bottom. Um, and uh, this also was in the Christmas pig, if you recall, um, that uh, surgery was performed on DP uh, to, to regain his sight. Uh, this, this happened to David's BP. Um, I mean, how, how, how much more autobiographical can you get? So uh, David's adventures with BP, continually losing him. We know that we know that the, she started plotting the story in a family holiday on the beach. Now, does anyone want to put any money on whether <laughs> David was burying BP at some point on that beach? Absolutely. I think it's in. I think it's inevitable. Uh, so, so we know that the the premise and the replacement toy um, was from her family life. We we know because of that wonderful acknowledgments uh, section. Um, all that remains to say that any resemblance between the things, capitalized things, in these pages and the things our family may have lost or found is, of course, entirely intentional. That means everything. The inhaler in the lunchbox, uh, all the bad habits, we are invited. We are invited to try and, and place that within Rowling's family's uh, uh, experience. These these are personal things for for her and her family. I, I have have you got at hand? There's there's two things she talked about in interviews, specifically, you know, to really encourage you to, to to go there in terms of speculation. One of them was the earrings, and yeah, and the and the other one was that this is not just David's toy. This is her toy, right? Yeah. So she was asked. Um, she she was she was asked uh, during the Scholastic uh, series of interviews uh, that, that they're available on the Rolling Library YouTube channel. I recommend you go and have a look at them. Yeah. It's one of the better uh, interviews with Rolling uh, and young children. And Rolling and young children is always a joy. Um, but she talked about her equivalent of Derpy. Uh, and it's it's a large blue-eyed pink and white teddy bear, uh, which was bought for me by my grandparents. I ended up calling him Henry after one of the trains on Thomas the Tank Engine, and it's still with her. So that that is her personal childhood toy. There's another toy. Yeah, um, this is the one I. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? I didn't know. Toy. I didn't know about the teddy bear. It's it's the turtle. Yeah, right? so that's that's the. That's the, te the teddy bear from her, her grandparents. Uh, but there was also a toy uh, that she received uh, as a slightly older child from her mother. Mother's love. This, and this is, this is a, key, a key point in all of, of Rowling's works. So, uh, and this was in the New York Times article that came out shortly before Christmas 2021. I own a cuddly tortoise sewn by my mother which she gave me when I was seven it has a floral shell a red underbelly and black felt eyes even though I'm notoriously prone to losing things I've managed to keep hold of that tortoise through sundry house moves and even changes of country so we know this went to, to Portugal and, and back with her uh, my mother died over 30 years ago so I've now lived more of my life without her than with her. I find more comfort in that tortoise than I do in photographs of her, which are now so faded and dated 
and emphasize how long she's been gone. What consoles me is the permanence of the object she made, its unchanging nature, its stolid, three-dimensional reality. I'd give up many of my own possessions to keep that tortoise, the few exceptions being things that have their own elusive power. What joy that she uses that phrase, yeah. elusive, elusive power, like my wedding ring. You talk about or Rowling rather talks about the alivening of things. That is, that when uh, inanimate objects through uh, your or another's love gives power to that thing, that's what she's talking about. So when she wants to feel a communion with her mother, there is the tortoise. Not, not, not in photographs, but in that physical three-dimensional object. And then she brings up her wedding ring. So that would be her communion to her husband and to, to, to her, her family. Um, that, that toy that she has is clear, and her reflection on it, she's clearly thought a lot about toys and this, this thing. And, and, and it, again, you've got much greater command of the interview stuff than I do. She talked about this transitional object. And this was, apparently, this was the engine of a lot of, of Evan Willis's insights is that he had been studying the toys as transitional objects. But Rowling says it's it's also got a magic quality. I mean, do you have that at hand, what that interview was? So I think that's, the, talking of the transitional object, another one from the, the Times interview shortly before, well, not so much Times interview, I think it was a, a Times article that she, she published. It's on the Rowling Library um, website. Uh, in the list of, of Rowling's works, and she she talked about these objects being being transitional between um, the the direct content of a mother of a parental figure, um, and then the transference of of that comfort of that love onto another object. So so that uh, when the mother or, or the parental uh, figure wasn't directly close to that child, the child gained comfort from this. And again, that's talking about almost embodying um, a, a mother's love within within the the inanimate. That it, you know, Rowling's principal artistry on the allegorical and anagogical levels is exteriorization. You know, be, be it the mirror of Arised, be it the Bogart, whatever. I mean, that, that you're going to take the inside and make it outside. Um, and then, just like a story, you're going to then interiorize it again. After you, it's, it's cognitive behavior therapy. You, you, you bring your, your beliefs out, you look at them, and you choose the ones that work. You re-interiorize them, or you choose better ones, and you, and you throw away the ones that aren't working for you. I mean, this is, this is what Rowling's saving psychological experience. But she talks about that transitional object language in psychology, and she says it's a little too clinical for her. You know, that that she thinks there's a bit of magic in this, in this exteriorization inside the story. Um, and that's, that's I, you know, because of the importance of mother's love inside her story, that, that really a mother's love is, a, is the way she talks about unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love, which is the love of Christ. She, when she wants to put that inside her stories, it's a mother's love. And, and that's what the, that's what Der Pig certainly is. I mean, I mean, Rowling is explicit on that. On, on page one of the book, she has Jack Jones sucking on that the uh, 
the pig's ear. You know, it, it's, it's a nipple displacement, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's the source of comfort. And, and every child, you know, as the mother, you know, the mother and child are really symbiotic, not only in, the, in, in gestation, in the womb, but postpartum as well for a significant period. The child really doesn't understand that it's separate from its mother. Um, and then when it does have something, there's a, that's, a, that's a trauma. That's what, hence the transitional object of a, of a toy. But Rowling is basically saying that, you know, this, this child, in this story, we're seeing a child whose family um, has a breakdown. There's, some, there's something wrong inside the family. And so this child is especially attached to this pig. There's some, there's some weakness inside this family. Um, I mean, because Jack's connection to his pig is not every child's attachment to their toy. I suspect that Rowling, because of her relationship with Peter Rowling, and I'm going to go out on the, the speculative highway here, but I mean, seriously, we know that, that Rowling has a bad relationship with her father, or at least not a positive relationship with her father. She's given this tortoise at age seven, and that, you know, this in a way was, that's, that's pretty old for a, you know, a, a plush toy. And yet Rowling, is, as she says, in, you know, miraculously has held on to this thing. This is not, this is not a woman that really has her, 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 the physical objects in her life in order. You know, she, she lost a pair of diamond earrings too, right? I mean, this, 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 this is not a lady who really finds great attachment to things. But she, but she never liked the earrings, John. I think that was the key. <laughs> That's true. But, but again, that tortoise, which was not apparently she describes it. It's not. It's not. It was a homemade toy. It's. It's. You know. It's. It's. Your coat of many colors here from Dolly Parton. This is. This is not something that anybody else is going to appreciate. But to her, it's the love of her mother. And by God, we, everything else can go. We're not losing this. This tortoise. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know. Go back to because we're talking about about Peter Rowling here already. It, we know that Chris, you know, Jack Jones and the Christmas pig are the Johns of the story. You know, basically the, you know, the mother's love piece. Beside the unnamed negligent dad, we don't know who the Peters are, right? I mean, unlike Jack, whose name is the marker and giveaway of his Joannian role and function, we're not given a Peter or Simon name as a direct pointer in Christmas pig's land of the living or land of the lost as to, as to who she's talking about. But I, I think the opposition between those whose touchstone is maternal or unconditional love, Team Jack, and the people and things whose life orientation is fear of and conformity with the law, I'm going to call them Team Loser. We've got as clear signals of Rowling's Peter and John defining psychological polarity inside Christmas Pig. Team Loser, as with that monster's wounded desire to understand, consume, and acquire the alivened bit of things, really their soul, end of Jack, to gain the capacity to love things as much as people do, as, as the loser says at the end. Team loser, they don't live in the light of love, that, that logos alivening bit within them, but in fear or its complement as, as agents of violence. Okay, The father figure internalized here is the law, which to a child and the things come alive in the land of the lost, is the guiding fear of arbitrary violence of the dad power that enforces the rules. Okay? I mean, to, to see that, if that sounds like, you know, <laughs> a huge leap to you, read the dialogue of the loss adjusters in Mislaid who manhandle Blue Bunny to the chute onto the waist of the unlamented. Nobody wants you! 
Nobody cares. You're lost. You're surplus. I mean, that's 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 rough. And then there's the soliloquy of Scissors, I, who I frankly I love as a character in Disposable. <laughs> it's the truth. Things need to know their place. That's how we all stay out of trouble, you know. And, and then we have the the speech of Mayor Greater and Bother It's Gone, the raving of King Power in the City of the Mist, and the common response of things to these rants, namely conformity to the law in fear rather than resistance in union with love and justice. That that vote in the palace of the City of the Mist about Jack and Christmas Pig's fate, I'm going to talk about that more you know, later on, is the conflict of every soul about whether to side with our internalized maternal unconditional love, the logos fabric of reality, our heart, or with the fear of paternal violence that will destroy our ego existence. Memory, happiness, hope, optimism, and half, half, only half of our principles that are seven votes for John, vain beauty, ambition, power, and the principles that value order before truth, the law before justice, they vote against Jack and the pig. Power, king power, overrules the majority vote, but hope, really in faith, saves Jack and pig both in the palace and in the loser's lair. Okay, so, and, and if you don't see John and Peter in that, I think you're really missing you know, the conflict inside the story, which is always, in rolling, I think it's always going to be between John and Peter, between Anne and her, you know, her father. Um, the, the most, the most, again, if you doubt this, look at the, the objects that are chosen to be loss adjusters, right? And I do, you know, I confess, you know, I think every Halloween for the rest of my life, I'm going to want to get one of those hats with a giant L on it. I mean, that that's, that's, all right, anyway. In the palace, those things that power uses to capture the boy and his pig are razors, scissors, pincers, and knives, wire clippers, chisels, and the huge mallet. Okay, these are typical. The agents of the law are things that cut: scissors, penknife, tin opener, things that smash, masher the hammer, hammer crusher the boot, the mallet, things that poke or pierce, fork and pin. All of these things are threats or weapons that make us fear for our physical safety and integrity. They break up our union with what is good and true with the possibility of our unity as things made up of stuff and soul being shattered. You know, and, and frankly, that's dad, right? That's dad spanking you. I mean, they, they, I mean he's going to break you down, right? They are the agents of the loser who literally sucks out the alivened bit of things and leaves them as something spiritually dead. The husks of a person that is attached with the Dementor's kiss. Um, Rowling's Peter John dichotomy does not have a Peter in Christmas Pig, but is the loveless and violent aspect of the loser's world and his agents and their generation of fear with the threat of violence that are its evidence representatives. I mean, I mean Rowling is, as you said, she's basically said, read this story in terms of my life. And there's all these correspondences, right? I mean, you've, you've laid them out. I mean, like we've never had someone testify that much about it. And if you haven't talked yet, I, I really want to hear, you know, we're going we're to get to that blue bunny scene where Rowling actually <laughs> makes a cameo, right? That's just a huge thing. But, but I really think if you're going to talk about the lake aspects to this book, you have to take the next step and say, yep, you know, not only is, we're going to talk about the sibling thing too, but 
it's it's clearly still that core when you, when you talk about the seven crises of Rowling's life the first two are you know death of Di of 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 Anne Rowling um, Anne Volant Rowling and her broken relationship with her father that they're just everywhere in what she's right and boy they make up the whole conflict inside this book they do I mean is there amongst all of that we talked about uh, the the turtle as the the object of her love for her mother and her mother's love for her, the turtle. Are there any turtlebacks? Is there room in this for a ring structure? Boy, I, that was a segue. Well, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, seriously, that um, there's there's a turtleback, okay, as well as a turtle plush toy. Um, Evan Willis, again, how much of this is Evan Willis? Evan Willis got there first, you know. You, yeah, I mean, there's there's a military a, uh, axiom. You want to get there first with the most, and Evan got there first with with both the uh, uh, the Dante imagery and the 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 nine parts aspects of this book. And, and the nine parts to get the nine parts, you have to see them as being an equal length, but they're not. You know, the first part you have to get the whole backstory of of you know Jack, and that's a quarter of the book. It's it's you're you're a quarter you're you're in the book, you know you have you have a quarter of the pages and the chapters of the book in part one, and that that's an astonishing thing really right. And the latch is only is only one chapter, but it it works if you just if you lay this out as a as a nine part ring, it all works. And just just real quick, I'm not gonna I I I wrote up a, a very long post that <laughs> that I'll have to. You know, read out loud for people to, to. They probably don't read it, but the the clasp of the story. And again, let's let's do how how a, a ring works. You got you draw draw a circle on a page with with the uh, the beginning and the end at the bottom. Where those the beginning and the end meet up there, you call that the clasp of the ring. That that's that's the beginning and end parts. And they have to hook up so that it's almost like a question and an answer it has to be. You know, you you have conflict and then you have resolution at the finish. And at the at the center of the story, say the top of that circle that you've drawn, that's going to be the center. That's the, and the meaning is going to be in the middle, right? And and that middle point is going to reflect the beginning, and it's going to point to the finish. And here's the turtle back part of this thing: is the chapters going out to that center on that as you've drawn that circle, they're going to be reflected in reverse order coming back. So that you're going to get, if you draw that circle out and you draw a line connecting the center with the bottom, you, you bisect that circle, and then you draw the lines across between those parallel chapter echoes, there's that turtleback picture. There's Rowling's tortoise in the story form. Now, in Christmas Pig, the clasp, the story's beginning and end parts, one and nine respectively, take place up there in the land of the living. Jack's home as part nine is titled. The the last part, the only one in part nine is, the last chapter, the only one in part nine is found, which is an obvious complement and completion to the lost chapter in part one in which Jack reacts to DP's defenestration. You know, Holly's throwing him out a window of a moving car. What a mean woman. Anyway, the, the center of the story is, you know, the, the Nadir Negretto of part five, the wastes of the unlamented which points to beginning and end while marking the beginning of the end, the story's second half. 
It reveals the solution to the mystery of Holly's bizarro behavior in part one. You know, she was so nice at the beginning of, of, the, of part one. And, and then all of a sudden she's, she's killing Jack's connection with his mom. You know? But in part five, right at the center, Jack meets bully boss in the bad habit gang. All right. And, and that it's the solution to that mystery. And it points to the story ending in parts eight and nine with the appearance of the loser. Right there, we you know that, that the waste of the unlamented. We see the loser. Jack makes his failed attempt to save Broken Angel. You know his first attempt to save Broken Angel. He bonds with CP in a hug, and and the, the sacrificial love and the finding of Blue Bunny. You know Blue Bunny being this 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 clear. Easter reference inside this book, okay? So the center is loaded in Christmas Pig. You know, it's just loaded. It, it gives you the beginning, gives you the end. It ties everything together. The meaning is definitely in the middle of Christmas Pig. The chiastic structure, okay, the parallels are turtleback lines crossing the story axis, bisecting the ring top to bottom. Connect Jack and CP's adventures in the six identical places in the land of the lost. The waste of the barren era in which the, the Waste of the Unlamented are that barren area in which all the other places in the land of the lost are placed with the crater holding the loser's lair acting as its center. You know, everything everything in the land of the lost pivots around the loser's lair or death. And, and there's a message there too, which we'll talk about in a minute. I mean, again, parts two and eight are called Mislaid and the Loser's Lair. They're the periphery and the origin of the land of the lost story circle in which Jack spends the briefest times and from which his only aim in mislaid and the loser's lab is to escape, right? Um, the, I mean, in, in the one, he's, you know, he's, he's going out into the land of the loser, but he's trying to find Dirt Pig and the loser's lair, he's trying to escape because he's found Christmas Pig. He needs to get out of there because he's, he's saved everybody else. But it looks like he sacrificed himself. He's going to die. The loser's going to get him. Um, indisposable, and the island of the beloved, they're they're the least and the most desirable places, respectively, for lost things to be allocated. And I mean, island of the beloved, you don't even get you don't you don't you don't get there from mislaid. You got you got to come there direct, right? Um, Jack's exit from the first and entry to the last are in vehicles into which Jack and CP are squeezed or wrapped up tight together. You know, he he gets out of disposable inside lunchy and he gets to the island of the beloved inside the carpet wrapping that hope flies him to the island of the beloved bother it's gone and the city of the mist they're both cities for privileged things that are ruled by pathological seekers of political and personal advantage adding the address book and Mayor Greater are in parallel with ambition and king power. I mean, it's a solid ring. There's, I mean, it's, I mean, everything Rolling writes from longer Twitter threads to individual stories to her, you know, the parts of her novels, the novels, the, the series of novels. I mean, yeah, I mean, her name, we've been talking, about, I've been talking about, you know, Joanne here as, as John, but really a large part of her name is rolling. You know, it's, it's, it's motion in a circle. She, she, she writes in rings and Christmas pig. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm convinced her shopping list <laughs> begin with milk eggs and end with eggs milk. 
I love it. Um, but and I hope that someday someone will will you know, dive into her bins and find that list just to, just to see if this is true. No, I I, I can see rolling now. Shred all shopping lists. You know, do not allow Nick Jeffrey to find a shopping list. Anyway, Christmas Pig. It's it's one of Rowling's tightest. I, I've said that it's it's the single book that I recommend to people. If they only have one thing they're going to read by Rowling, I say Christmas Pig. And one of the one of the reasons for that is that it's it's Rowling's tightest and most effective chiastic structure. It's a real delight for people consumed by you know shed artistry. But the Blue Bunny, okay, is perhaps the pig character with the most profound and telling story arc. What is Rowling's life, back into the lake here, what does Rowling's life tell us about the Blue Bunny? Well, the Blue Bunny, of course, is real. So it is a real object in the Murray family history. Uh, and she, she talked about this in an interview. So uh, I quote her here. My youngest daughter, she found a muddy little Blue Bunny in the flower bed that had obviously been there for years. And just like the mother in the story, I said it will break the washing machine if we put that bunny in the washing. She really begged me to keep it, and she still has that blue bunny, which must have been dropped by a child in the garden a long time ago. But we managed to clean blue bunny up pretty well. So that was also inspired by something that happened in my family. I think the I think the also is redundant. <laughs> I I think you cannot move for real life allusions to to the Murray family in this book but for, for me it's particularly moving on a number of different levels so this was found by Mackenzie Jean uh, Murray uh, almost certainly in the Victorian Edinburgh house that, that uh, the Murray family now lives in Mackenzie Jean Murray could have anything she wanted her mother is a <laughs> billionaire. She wanted this muddy, moldy, been outside in all weathers, in Scottish weather, artificial rabbit is what she wanted. <laughs> she didn't want a blue bunny. She wanted that blue bunny. And I think that shows um, some level of compassion in that the reason that she wanted it was because it was unloved. It, it was a blank canvas that she could put her love onto this unloved object. So Blue Bunny in the story is, is a hopeless object. You know, he has been cast out. He has been told he's not wanted. He is worthless. And then probably the most profound self-insert that Rowling has ever done, she puts herself and she puts her daughter into the story to reach down and rescue this character, to rescue Blue Bunny. Now, I, I love it when you can hear the rolling authorial voice. In, in, it's very clear in the Ichabod, in the Strike series, you really have to listen for it, because very often, of course, it's the characters talking, it's not the author. It's still there, but you need to look for it. In this, this is... This is the Mary Sue. So Rowling is there, okay? She's called her daughter Jeannie rather than Mackenzie Jean, but that is the voice of her and that is the voice of her daughter. She has broken through into the story. And how does she break through in the stories? I mean, this, 
you, you put your finger on it in that she, it's a rescue and that Rowling honors this maternal love in her daughter. Um, clearly nonplussed that her daughter wants to bring a piece of trash into her house, but she's going to honor this rescue motive, which is very much like um, remorse that motivates uh, Holly inside the book in that it's selfless. You know, there's, there's simply no gain. There's no advantage in picking up a dirty blue bunny inside the thing. Um, I mean, this... But there's no, there's no obvious, there's no visible advantage to it. I mean, I think the, 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 the point is that the, the advantage is there, but it is, it is within oneself. That's it, right. is, it is spiritual. That's right. That, that is the advantage. That's right. There's, there's, there's no um, exteriorized advantage to being seen with a dirty blue toy. But interior-wise, you feel this you know, communion with what's most real inside of you. And that's, yeah, that's, you know, the real here is, is where we're going, right? I mean, because that's what, that's, rolling reflects on this blue bunny. And she thinks about it. And she injects it inside this story. Now, the, the, the temptation here to whoever is writing the annotated Christmas pig in the future is going to be to say, you know, just, just connect the dots. Rowling told us this story, and so she just she picks up this life event and throws it in her thing. Well, Rowling has a lot of life events. You know, why did she choose to put in this very allegorical story? Why did she choose to put a blue bunny in? All right, well, I'll unpack that in a while, but that's that. It's it's that's not an accident. The color blue and the bunny both. Obviously, at one point, Rowling had an aha moment. Oh, the blue bunny! You know what? What, what is what is that about? And what, what what kind of story can that be used in? And that that's really genius to, to see life art correspondence. And it's and it's a way. It's a it's a it's a magnificent cipher for the whole lake shed experience where. Rowling is confronted with this blue bunny in her life, and she, she picks up this bunny, put, throws it in the washing machine, and takes it into her shed and transforms this blue bunny into a figure that is, is going to be like the, the specters in Christmas Carol, I believe, in the future. That um, I'm really surprised that we don't have blue bunny uh, toys being sold right now for Christmas time. I, I definitely want my grandchildren to have blue bunnies. I mean, really, can't you do that? I think. I think w one of the things that truly surprised me was the choice of artwork for this book. Uh, and I'm not saying that the artwork isn't good. It, it's it's great artwork. Rowling clearly in her interviews, she raves. Um, on it. She raves on. It. Thinks thinks it's wonderful. Uh, but but for me, it is it is very. Um, animated film that's right style. that's right anime almost. yeah if you yeah if you if you think of um monsters inc that kind yeah. of pick, animated pick, pixar. christmas yeah, film that's right pixar i'm surprised honestly nobody has picked it up to make that animated film and i think from that we will get all the plush toys oh, you okay. could ever want okay. christmas pigs and blue bunnies and and i mean this is this is off this is off topic but i i, I, I but this is the way our conversations go, Nick. <laughs> um, <laughs> this um, clearly rolling has been offered millions 
tens of millions of dollars for the rights to this story. I can't believe that Pixar isn't in negotiation with Warner Brothers Discovery, hasn't, hasn't, hasn't called, you know, her horrific... Neil Blair? Neil Blair. The, the Neil Blair. You know that Neil Blair has gotten offers on this. Um, this is... this is so, Really? Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's simply no way that he that has... And that... I'm, I'm so confident of that. To me, my question isn't, um, you know, when will we see this? It's why hasn't Rowling already picked up that money? And I think it's because this story, in a way, is is so personal and so important to her. And it's so much about imagination. This is so much about that jack-in-the-box scene. First, there's jack-in-the-box, and then there's jack-in-the-lunchbox, and then there's... There's there's Jack on the run after after the loser appears, um, and then there's Jack, who really coming comes out of his box in the correspondence, um, in the loser's lair where Jack really comes out of himself and is himself truly. This is such a revelation of Joanne Rowling that she wants it to be experienced primarily imaginatively in its most powerful way. You know, parents reading to their children before it gets, frankly, it gets, it gets spoiled and being exteriorized in uh, a Disney production like Pinocchio or Disney Snow White or Disney whatever. Um, she doesn't want it to, I'm, 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 again, for, forgive me if I'm, if I'm in uh, what I hope is true <laughs> and what I think <laughs> is true, but I, I, I'm pretty sure Rowling's been offered a lot of money to put this thing on the screen, of some kind of screen and if she has, you know, Rowling's not indifferent. She has a lot of charitable projects she could use that money for. The fact that she hasn't, I think, is that she wants this thing to, to mature a little bit on the vine. She wants this thing to have a few people read it to their children first before it turns into something that they can only see through the pictures. Um, I, I, I hope this thing goes much more to a children's book with much more illustrations before it goes to the big screen. Um, it's such an important work. Um, I, I, seriously, I, it, it's, I, I reread it like you um, for this podcast, and I was thrilled that it stood up. I mean, I had this idea that it was that good, and then rereading it, re-entering the land of the lost, I was as excited and thrilled and you know, wanting to, I wanted, as soon as I was done, I wanted to go back. Once, once I was found, I wanted to go back to Lost. You know, I wanted to just go through it again. It was that edifying. I had come out of my, I'm, I'm a John. I wanted to be, I wanted to be the jack in the box. You know, I wanted to be the guy coming out of the box. And that, that was such a thrill to me that it's, I, I'm hoping that Rowling is saying, I want readers to have that experience again and again and again. Before they plug this thing in, you know, they get it streaming on Netflix or Amazon Prime Video or whatever, um, that they're going to see this thing in their hearts before they see it on a screen. I, I want to give a shout out to the audiobook as well. This, this oh, actually, oh, my, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the audiobook adaptation for, for Christmas Pig was my very first audiobook. So oh, I my had, goodness. I, <laughs> I had <laughs> never experienced being, being the, the podcast uh, addict that I am. I had never listened to, to an audiobook before the publication of, of Christmas Pig is the, the first one. And this is um, I've now listened to quite a few audiobooks, 
but the the production values of this one of the Christmas Pig, it has a, a cast. Yeah. So there is a narrator and and a full cast. It is excellently done. It is really excellently done. And and um, likewise, re-listening to it for this podcast. <laughs> A wonderful, a wonderful Christmas experience. I think if you're not a confident reader and you want to read it to your kids, play the audiobook. Play the audiobook for the family. That's but right. It's a wonderful, wonderful. As experience. as as the father of seven, I know that if this had been available on audiobook, it would have been. Whenever we got into a car, it would have been Christmas pig. You know that. <laughs> um, I mean, just just the voice of. I don't know who the character. I don't know the, the actor's name, but whoever played the blue bunny. I mean, what 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 masterful capture! You know, and he's being drawn up on his light, and he's, he's begging Jeannie to take him. They don't want me. You know? I mean, that <laughs> voice, I just it just rings your heart. Okay, I mean, anyway, yeah, the audiobook on that is is extraordinary. And again, it's it when you when you have a book read aloud to you or you experience through your ear that aural a u r a l. You know, there's a golden quality to it that you can't possibly get via screened images. You know, it's, it's just not something that, that will work that way. Um, so I'm hopeful that, that she delays that as long as possible. As much as I want a blue bunny toy <laughs> that, as you say, will only come out once, <laughs> once Pixar gets hold of this. Um, and I, I can imagine, you know, Neil Blair saying, we got to get this thing up. You know, uh, I'm glad she's resisted that. I'm glad if, if she has, you know. Um, maybe rolling is so poisonous now that Pixar and Dixon, Disney aren't interested in this. You know, maybe that's that's the I, case. I, I I must say I I predicted both for the Ichabog and Christmas Pig fairly early adaptations, uh, knowing how quickly um, Casual Vacancy had a TV movie adaptation. Uh, I was expecting fairly fairly early adaptations for both of those, but there's there's not even been uh, a hint. You know, or, or even a hint of discussions, but but it'll be interesting to see, you know, how how that develops. Surely it can't last for very long because they are both such great stories. Well, it, I mean, again, you mentioned, you know, you opened this this conversation with saying it was it was it was the it was the great greatest year for rolling obsessives. Really, you get you get troubled blood, the Ichabog and Christmas Pig, in such close order. Right, but you have to remember that those were also that was that was the Annis Horribilis of of Rowling's life, maybe yeah. her public life at least, when she was being canceled and you know people were calling for her rape, her murder, her you know execution, the death of her family. You know, I mean, this this was insane what was going on in her life, um, and yet she, that 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 was the greatest flowering of her of her artistic you know life in terms of you know just just concentrated publication history um and and, and you you have to under, you know, again for the annotated christmas pig you have to mention that you have to mention that this comes out at one of the darkest times of her life um you know and, and that she she publishes this story now. um yeah not only is it an explanation on why she wasn't picked up also the fantastic beast story that's going on at the same time the, the troubles in getting the third part of that series put together, the you know it's constantly delayed not only because of COVID but because Rowling had become radioactive to the fandom, um, the Harry Potter fandom. So 
yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's not Rolling's resistance. Maybe Rolling's out there on the floor like, I wish I was turning down tens of millions of dollars. I haven't gotten a single offer on this thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's that. But, but Rolling seems to have recovered significantly from that. Um, you know, the transgender madness, you know, with the COVID madness is not behind us, certainly. But we're not seeing, you know, uh, the, the un, unquestioned transitioning of teenage boys and girls into their supposed opposites, really just their destruction, uh, their mutilation. We're not seeing that anymore. You know, rolling in a way has won that point that they, you have to draw some lines here. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we'll, I, again, I'm, I, if that, whatever the reason, I'm glad, you know, that, that this book has not made it to the animated status or whatever. This has, that, that the, you know, the Snow White can only be imagined in terms of the 1930s Disney experience. You know, that, that's, um, that's sad. That's sad if that's the case. Anyway, I want I, I want to go back into I want to go back into the blue bunny, man. The blue bunny, you know. Again, Rowling's baptizing or, or or elevating this seemingly accidental experience in her life. But that that his his disappearance, if you will, from the story, you know, his his uh, apotheosis in a way inside the books is so resonant with what Rowling is talking about when she talks about the real. I mean, we see this in part seven of Running Grave, um, where part seven of, like, all the parts of Running Grave, they're rings. And the center of part seven is Carrie, Carrie Gittens, the woman who carried the uh, supposed die you to the to the water to the beach without permission and Carrie breaks down in the interview with Robin and Strike in part seven she really loses it she, you know uh, she it, just quote this you know Carrie emitted something between a gasp and a cough and began to cry again. She rocked backwards and forwards, sobbing into her hands for a couple of minutes. When Robin silently mimed to strike an offer of comfort to Carrie, Strike shook his head. Um, doubtless he'd be accused of heartlessness again on the return journey, but he wanted to hear Carrie's own words, not her response to somebody else's sympathy or ire. Okay? And that's important, that heartlessness here, because we're about to get the heart of Carrie Kittens, right? I've regretted it all my life. All my life, Carrie sobbed, raising her swollen-eyed face, tears still coursing down her cheeks. I felt like I didn't deserve Poppy and Daisy when I had them. I shouldn't have agreed. Why did I do it? Why? I've asked myself that over and over, but I swear I never wanted. I was young. I knew it was wrong. I never wanted it to happen. Oh, God. And then she was dead. And it was real. It was real. And real is, is italicized here. She's really putting emphasis on the real. What do you mean by that, said Strike? What do you mean by it was real? It wasn't a joke. It wasn't pretend. When you're young, you don't think stuff like that happens. But it was real. She wasn't coming back. Now, she knows what really happened to Dayu. She knows that she didn't carry Dayu into the water. 
you know, and then she died. She knows that she, it was real. This 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 person was murdered. Um, and she's so horrified for her children, she's basically coerced into suicide, you know, by the actual killer inside the story. So I wouldn't want to ruin the story for anybody, Nick, right? No, <laughs> no. All right. Um, but that, that whole thing about it's real. I mean, they use the word real there four times, you know, and strike as if, as if that wasn't enough, you know, what do you mean by it was real? You know, it's just real. And there's no way a rolling reader doesn't, doesn't, you know, you know, doesn't remember, you know, what Rowling said. She, she waited 17 years to write the lines of Harry and Dumbledore at King's Cross. Tell me one last thing said Harry, is this real or has this been happening inside my head? Dumbledore beamed at him and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears. The bright mist was ascending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? Okay, that that's... Rowling has said you can't understand the books unless you look along that line of sight. And I've I spent a lot of time in Deathly Hallows lectures exploring that. That is maybe the critical conversation in the entire seven book series of Harry Potter. Okay, in Troubled Blood, which is, again, I think the halfway point is, is a, the middle of, of the entire series arc of the 10 book series. We get a fun reversal of the Potter Dumbledore exchange at Skegness where Robin and Corman are talking about astrology. You're being affected, Robin said. Everyone knows their star sign. Don't pretend to be above it. Strike grinned reluctantly, took a large drag on his cigarette, exhaled, and said, Sagittarius, Scorpio rising with the sun in the first house. You're, Robin began to laugh. Did you just pull that out of your backside, or is it real? Of course it's not fucking real, italicized, said Strike. None of it is real, is it? Okay. In Christmas Pig, you know, at that scene outside the city of the mist, we get the real again. Do you just he, he Blue Bunny is talking to Christmas Pig and to Jack, and he, he can't figure out why they're trying to get into the city of the mist. Do you just want to live in nice houses? asked Blue Bunny, or is there another reason you want to get in? Yes, said Jack, before Christmas Pig could stop him. Somebody I need's in there. He's called DP, and he's my favorite cuddly toy. For a long moment, Jack and Bunny stared into each other's eyes, and then Blue Bunny let out a long sigh of amazement. You're a boy, he whispered. You're real. He isn't, said the panic-stricken Christmas pig. <laughs> he's an action figure called, it's all right, pig. <laughs> said Blue Bunny. I won't tell anybody, I promise. You really came all the way into the land of the lost to find your favorite toy? He asked Jack, who nodded. And that, that you really came? That, that has all sorts of rich meanings. You know? he, he says it to Jack, who nodded. Then I'll be your decoy, said Blue Bunny. It would be an honor. Okay. I mean, the bunny's simple declaration, you're real. In effect, from up there, the greater reality of the land of the living in which things have their awakening in the love of their owners clarifies those other usages. 
right? Dumbledore shares his wisdom with Harry, that, mater- that maternal, the, the maternal love which saved him, first at Godric's Hollow and then in the forest, is the metaphysical substance beneath, behind, and within all other reality. Strike gives Robin a dose of his skeptical ignorance and nominalist first principle that nothing is real but surface appearance subject to measurement and physical sensation, mental grasp of all things being consequent to that. That's, that's the turning point of the entire series because that's what Strike is going to have to give up. That skeptical ignorance and nominalist first principle that nothing is real. And we see in Carrie Gittens her agony about the real and she she she. She puts this specifically in relation to the birth of her two children. Right? That that's what's real. Christmas Pig's real moment acts, acts as a key to those others, one evident in the bunny's response to the revelation of Jack's greater ontological status. He does a dobby. He offers to die for Jack as Jack has done in his ascent into the land of the lost for DP, a surrender of self to near certain death in being given to the loser he considers honor. He acts spontaneously and selflessly as a decoy, a saving replacement, in other words, for the living boy, as Dobby did for the boy who lived. The pathetic distraction that saved the DP rescue mission and mislaid, despite himself, crying out in desperation for his own existence, has metamorphosed, consequent to his experience with Broken Angel and in Jack's example, into a heroic decoy that allows Jack and CP to enter the city of the myth, the mist. And, and, and the blue bunny makes out better than the house elf. This is the key event of the book and the best evidence since the death of Lily Potter, Harry's defeat of Quirrell, and the demise of the Dark Lord that mother's love is Rowling's default symbolism for Christian love in her writing. The bunny's choice to act as a decoy, his decision to die to his ego self generates the life-saving appearance of maternal love and its equivalent in the transference attachment a child feels for a beloved toy. There's rolling herself and her daughter that appear in the book. The Johannine quality of the light that shines down on him, on the bunny, from the finding hole, and his Elijah-esque elevation nails down that Logos love correspondence. Okay? This is why Christmas Pig is Rowling's best standalone story, I think, is, is you're getting this thing in, in this uh, concentrated form that you don't get almost anywhere else. I mean, I, oh well. I mean, I mean this is you know, the answer to, to the skepticism that's, that permeates our age, really. Um, genie here is, is, is a John acting as something of a genie. She saves the blue bunny as his sacrificial love created the corresponding opening in the finding hole. Uh, This is in parallel with how Jack's thoughts of his mother created Crusher's opening to the up there. Because you remember when Jack's about to be, Jack and Christmas Pig are about to be destroyed by the big boot, you know, in the city of Bother It's Gone. He's about to get captured there and Bother It's Gone. Jack reaches out to Christmas Pig and holds his hand and thinks, I won't be able to see my mother again. And Christmas Pig is inspired to say, hold on for the thing that's going to change all other things. And right then the sky opens up and this boot is written. The, the boot crusher is the only thing inside 
all of the land and the lost that fights being saved, you know? <laughs> okay. Um, he, he, this, this shows all of the messianic traits in, for the blue bunny that Rowling said she invested in Harry Potter in her direct interview, okay? Um, and in, in case the readers miss these allegorical correspondence, one of the lost adjusters at the city of the Miss Gates uses the word saved as a synonym from the usual land of the lost term found. He says, what's the last time you saw a bit of surplus saved? Okay. Um, I mean, the, the bunny's apotheosis allows Jack and CP to enter the gates and hide in a gondola beneath a thick velvet wrap, a dark blue velvet blanket. And we, we, we see velvet in Disposable, the saloon there, the, the moth-eaten velvet curtains. And you really do have to read Beatrice Groves' Christmas Pig article in the Rolling Library about the velveteen rabbit or how toys become real. But even without that, the first thing they encounter in the City of the Mist is happiness. Okay? And this and this is more bl- more blessedness than delight. You know, this is not grins and giggles. I mean, her light and warmth evidence of her radiant empathy for the two stowaways and her vote in the palace of power, not to mention her relationship with hope, mark her as another symbol of maternal Christic love. The the blue bunny, a toy become real after meeting the real living boy, allows Jack and CP to enter the city to miss with happiness, who with hope is the agent of their being lifted up in a tapestry, a work of art, out of the clutches of the loser's loss adjusters and power and transported to paradise, the Isle of the Beloved. I mean, this, this, I mean, this is such a wow. I, we haven't talked that much about you know, the whole land of the lost thing, but the correspondence here between grades of reality b- begin with the logos, light, love, life and love of, the, of this world transcendent spiritual realm as its point of origin. Reflecting it directly and by parallel characters are the incarnation of Christ and specifically his appearance on earth at nativity, the night of miracles and lost causes. That's that's, that's the setting of the whole book. The sacrificial love of Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection that beget in the loser's lair. The love a mother feels for her child. There's rolling right there. You know, here I am. And the love a child feels for its transitional object, toy, post-attachment from mom in which it feels something of that maternal love. They see, you see all of this. You know, you, this, this Christmas pig is this jack-in-the-box story of a boy's explosive chrysalis and transformation. It's the best introduction to Rowling's work as a traditional writer of mythic, traditional allegory, which is to say psychomachia, of the soul's journey to spiritual perfection. It's, it's, it's your imaginative experience of the real. That is what Rowling is after. And when Blue Bunny says, you're real. It's an honor to die for you because you're real. That's Rowling's word. You know, I mean, I'm working, Patricio Tarantino is helping me do, you know, searches on real, which is very hard to do word searches on real inside Harry Harry Potter and Strike and all these things because every, do you know how many words begin with real? You know, R-E-A-L, you know, you got thousands of those. But, this this is, you know, the 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 gut of this story. I mean, so, what? So again, what's real in this story points to what is real in general. You know, the the heart of existence, and to what is, 
into what is unreal of our experience as human beings. If you're if you if you like Stryker saying none of it's real, you know, then, then you're 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 on your journey with Cormoran Strike to get that. But for a lake reading a Christmas pig, there's another meaning to real. Okay, um, and, and this is this is this is this is going to be a harder part than all the stuff that, that Rowling has testified to. I mean, what is the real correspondence here between life and story? This involves some inductive speculation, Nick, between Rowling's family life and this book. And we've talked, we've, we've pointed to this. I, of course, have given away the game too much, but can you explain the process of inductive speculation as well as the connections between Rowling's marriages and her children and those we see inside Christmas Pig? Okay, so a, a brief recap on when we, we talk about the lake and we talk about the shed. So this was this comes from Rowling's revelatory uh, interview on the BBC uh, a few years ago, the, in uh, the Museum of Curiosities, where she, where she finally answered that perennial question: Where do you get your ideas from? And she described uh, in her head there is a lake in a forest with a shed, and the ideas that pop into her head. The inspiration, well, that's the lake. And then she takes these ideas and she fashions them. So she she uses her, her skills uh, as an author, uh, as a spiritual being, to create the story in the shed. And when we talk in Hogwarts Professor about Lake and Shed, well, we talk about her artistry, which is, is the shed, is the chiastic structure, is the allegory is is the alchemy and the lake is her inspiration this is the literary illusions and this is the biographic uh, illusions within her work so when we look at something like the christmas pig the story centers around uh, the things which she has admitted are her and her family's things the story is based around the favorite toy of her son. So, of course, we look at the parallels between the mother of the story and the son, Jack, and Rowling and her son, David. And then we look at the other characters and we see how they can fit. So the, the story opens with the blended family. So this is uh, a daughter uh, and a father who join the mother and the son. Um, to create a new family, a blended family. And that doesn't quite fit with Rowling's family. So we know Rowling had a daughter, Jessica, and Jessica is 10 years uh, older than David. Now we know Holly in the story is 11. The difference in ages between Jack and Holly is much, much less than the difference in ages between Jessica and and David. But that being said, we know that not just in Christmas Pig, but in many, most all of her stories, there are, are threads, there are themes of sibling rivalry. Uh, in Cormoran Strike, usually to murderous effect. Now, we are not saying that there is some murderous sibling <laughs> rivalry within uh, Rowling's family, but it is a theme. So it is it is something that somewhere within her lake, be it life or literature, has Rowling thinking about sibling rivalry. 
if you if you listen to the voice of Holly in uh, Christmas Pig, she is talking as a much older individual, as a much older sister than an eleven-year-old to say a seven or eight-year-old. Uh, this is this is almost a parental figure. I can I can imagine that voice being the voice of Jessica. I can imagine there being some sibling tensions within the Rowling family, and I can see J.K. Rowling using that as inspiration to help craft this story. Now, we need to be cautious. We can't take this too far. We can't say that this is absolutely demonstrating that there is internal family strife within the Murray household. We know from the acknowledgments that certainly at the, at the point of inspiration for Christmas Pig, they were the five Murrays. They were a family unit. We know that Deck, Decker, Rowling was used as a help for her logical um, uh, critiquing of the, the logic of Christmas Pig for this story. We know she's on board for the story. I, I don't think there is any, or at least we have no evidence for there being some catastrophic sibling problem within the Rowling Murray family, but for sure, you know, I, I know of no families where there is complete sibling harmony, where we can't draw on, on instances of, of uh, sibling arguments. Uh, and I, I am convinced that a large part of that has been drawn on for inspiration for the Christmas pig. I mean, this is inductive speculation, and yet I don't. There's no. There's no feeling of stretching here. There's. There's so much sibling rivalry, obviously, in Christmas Big with children, um, and we have Rowling's testimony again from that 2019 interview on the BBC that you know she takes stuff from her real life. We have all of her testimony about Christmas Pig saying this is all about my family's life. Really, if you object to that kind of speculation that, you know, there was there almost certainly was a chrysalis experience for Jessica akin to what Holly experiences inside this book. And maybe it was around Christmas time. You know, who knows? Maybe it was around just her, mar her mother's marriage at, at Christmas time to Neil Murray. Who knows? We don't know. And, and you know, when the, when the annotated Christmas pig is published in 2054, you know, if we, we live that long, we'll probably know by then. But I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that, you know, to, to argue inductively, speculatively, that this is what it's about, especially because not only do we have Christmas pig, which if Evan is right, is going to be the, the you know, the analog for strike 10, but we have all the sibling rivalries murderous rivalries and uh, you know Freudian family romances inside the strike novels they're really at the heart of the strike novels um, every every you know many of the murders and almost all of the foundation crimes in each of the books is about uh, sibling rivalry you know it, 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 I, it's, it's it's there it's there um, so I Again, there's there's not much to make of that, you know, other than to say this is where rulings get it. But it's a little bit like the blue bunny, you know, the blue bunny. You get a, a blue stuffed toy, you know, toy, and blue being kind of the universal symbol for melancholy or sadness. You know, you can even take it to despair, depression. You know, and then the bunny, you know, in in 
forgive me, in, in uh, modern symbolism, the bunny is only associated for holidays with Easter. And so Rowling has elevated that symbol to this character that starts out despairing. You, you, you meet the thing, it's just a pathetic figure being shoved down a chute into this thing. And then it, you, you, we, we meet it on the waist of the lamented where he's offering real comfort to broken angel. That, you know, Jack has also been part of the, you know, he doesn't care about broken angel. He's not something, but but by the blue bunny's example, he tries to save Broken Angel on that thing. And that's really the beginning of Jack's heroism and selflessness is that he's right in the presence of a loser. He's trying to save Broken Angel. That's that's a that's that's you know the signature change inside the thing. Blue and, and Blue Bunny has been the agency of that. And then, you know, when when they're on their way to this city of the mist, Blue Bunny is the only one with the sight of all the things down below. He's the only one with the transformed vision that can see Jack for who he is, immediately recognize him, and connect the dots. I will die. I will sacrifice myself. The thing that he was so terrified of, you know, back in Mislaid, he now embraces. He knows that those guards are going to capture him and, and, you know, give him to the loser or worse. And he, he runs for it because he has experienced the real. To sacrifice himself for what's real, he knows that's going to be his greater life. I mean, he, he may not know it consciously, but you know, we shouldn't have been surprised really when the blue bunny uh, ascends into heaven, basically, with this maternal love because he's become an embodiment of it. That's, this is the kind of fruit, that, that, that process of, of lake to shed reading is and, and it being a kind to a crisis obviously Rowling's daughter finding the blue bunny was not a crisis in her life right but Rowling's experience with her mixed marriage you know the, the the you know that she's got a child from a different man inside this marriage and that child's feeling lost and yet she loves that child as much as she loves her children with the Murrays you know the the process of bringing Decca into the Murray family clearly you know, and, and the context of her whole marriage you know her relationship with Neil Murray which has to have been an, it is a remarkable achievement you know you can't I can't think of much a much greater challenge for a man than to not be able to be a provider and a protector that's that's the way men show unconditional selfless sacrificial love that's 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 the male normative biological thing that's the way we show christ-like love to others and that's largely been taken out of neil murray's wheelhouse you know he can't he can't provide for a woman who's a billionaire right I mean, how does he do that and and how does he protect her when she has she, she pays for armed guard popcorn and unasked for tea. that's right and, and that's a remarkable achievement that they've sublimated this somehow that, that she, can, she can say that she never could have imagined being inside such a secure relationship with a man. That he does provide her with some kind of security and protection that she never imagined she would be able to enjoy inside her marriage. And that she talks about that wedding ring with such, having such power to her. That Neil Murray has done this. That's what I think, you know, that, that achievement inside their marriage and inside their family and their children, that I think is where the strike novels are going.
I mean, we see always in the conflict of, you know, Robin's role where she's, you know, she's lost the marriage already to this role. You know, that she's taken on this masculine thing. It's part of the whole, you know, Robin is sterile argument. But that for another conversation, right? Um, I mean, this this inductive speculation that we're making is um, key to getting the lake and shed artistry of the books. How she's making this not just about, as you said, a, a Mary Sue thing. But I, I think I, in the last podcast I called her the Mary Jane. Anyway. Uh, that 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 Mary Sue element of this book is relatively, I don't want to say trivial, because it's it's like, it's like the, when you do a quadrigal reading, and and you and you dismiss the surface story because you want to get to that anagogical sublime meaning or whatever, you don't get any of the, you don't get the moral allegorical and sublime readings except through the surface story. If the surface story doesn't grab you and 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 engage you you don't get any of those other meanings they all have to come through that it's like a cake and an icing you don't get the cake unless you go through the icing and if the icing looks you know is, is unattractive you're never going to find out how good that cake is well Rowling's life aspects this what you call her life and literature elements I'd, I'd call it her her um biographical and bibliographical thing, because I like longer words than you do, Nick, but it's, it's equally alliterative. <laughs> um, that That's the surface part of this story that you have to get through in order to, to really appreciate the achievement of what she's doing inside these books. Um, and, and, you know, but this is kind of the easy one, this, this inductive speculation. We're, I, you know, we're going to go other places with this inductive speculation eventually, but I, I, I want to put a marker down here that, you know, if you accept this inductive speculation that Rowling is talking about her, her children and their relationships and her husband and that kind of thing here, because it's 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 in such high relief here inside the story of Christmas Pig. I hope that that will help people, you know, be a little less resistant to other speculation about things in Rowling's life um, that we see inside the stories and then try to figure out how that was baptized inside the shed. I keep saying baptized. It's it's really elevated or transformed. I think it's important as well for us to emphasize that this is a, a, a speculation. We think it's important speculation because we're picking up on themes that Rowling is writing about. So these are themes that are, are important to Rowling. We're only asking the question why. So so what what is it? about these themes that make it so important for, for Rowling. What, what is it about sibling strife, sibling rivalry, arguments within families that is so important to her? And, we, and we're looking for reasons for that, either within her life or, or within the literature that, that we, we know she reads. Um, so, so we're not inventing this. We're not in, inventing the, the themes. All we're doing is speculating about why these themes are so apparent, right? And, and, and we could be we could be wrong. That's right. But we well, I'm not sure. I want to go that far. How can we be wrong? Nick? <laughs> How can we be wrong? Says the man who who thought that all of all of your speculation about there being a new book was was madness. Um, that really though, I can see how Christmas Pig. One of the reasons I I you know this is the second episode of our discussion about uh, rolling studies that we that we 
put Christmas pig right in here. It's not just the seasonal thing. It's because in a way, Christmas pig acts as a key, if you will, to the, to unlock everything inside Rollins. I think that, you know, obviously, um, I think that's true. And I think it will be the growing understanding of in, within Rolling Studies in the future. Um, I mean, we're, 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 what we're trying to do at Rolling Studies, as, as I, we said at the beginning of this episode, we're going to say this at the beginning of every episode, is we're trying to think the way that Dickens, Shakespeare, and Joyce scholars do about those authors who have their subjects, life stories, and complete works before them. I mean, we don't have Rowling's biography to read. She hasn't written one. Um, she's, she's definitely made it a subject of banishment for any friend that talks to anybody about her life story. And she's protective of her family, right? These are still very young people. So we don't, we don't get that stuff. But we are going to get that in the future. We've connect, we're connecting the dots here between Rowling's family and this book, Christmas Pig, a connection that she points to, as you've laid out, Nick, and as future scholars are going to, future scholars will consider all this obvious. Okay? And, and, and this is, seriously, if you pick up any book by Dickens and you read the introduction to the book by Dickens, if you don't learn that he had a rough childhood, right, it, that, that introduction has really done you a disservice because you're not going to understand why there are so many unhappy children, orphans, you know, stranded children. I mean, that's that's what Dickens writes about. That's the that's that's the core experience of his life, and how he raises that up inside story allegorically is that you know the great gift which is Charles Dickens. And the, and the same thing is true for Shakespeare, for Joyce, for you know. It's 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 what literary critics do when they know enough about an author, is, is you is you go there. That's not the personal heresy on, on a couple of levels. One, Rowling's invited us to do this. She's, she's basically anticipating this. And especially with Christmas Big, she just laid out all the correspondences with her own life. She's, she's not, and we don't, as you said, we don't, we don't know all of them. We don't know about the scissors that she lost. You know, we don't, we don't know about all these, but they're there, clearly. We don't know about which one of her children had, had to use an inhaler at some point, which I assume is the case. That, we're anticipating that. Um, and if, and if we make mistakes, you know, we ask your forgiveness. But I, I, I don't think we're responsible if we simply continue to do what we've always done with Roland, which is just focus on the latest book and look at the next one. It's, it's time to see not only the, the, the works as a whole, you know, pretend that her best work is behind her, and to read those books in light of her her life and her her library or literature, you know, that her her biography, her bibliography, that that, that that's how you have to do this. But you, you, you but but you got to get into the shed, Nick. You got you got to go into the shed. Um, I mean, and 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 that's when we have to talk about the. Um, I mean, I've written a whole series of posts at Hogwarts Professor, the the weblog about the perennialist reading in Christmas Pig, and it's it's the heart of my PhD thesis. Not not Christmas Pig per se, but all of Rowling's work. And I'm not I'm not going to you know give you the sublime stuff. We got, we got to save something for an Easter reading of Christmas Big or or next year's reading of Christmas Big. But I you, you've really got you, you're not going to get Christmas Pig and why why it's so profound and works without the key allegory of it. You know the reality being up there rather than down here. Jack's Land of the Lost is Plato's cave. 
You know, it's our world in this temporal life, what C.S. Lewis described as the shadow lands. Every lost thing from this view is a more realistic depiction of our human existence than our day-to-day -day profane understanding of our life in this world. You know, strikes, you know, view of, of nothing is real. You know, in, this, in the sub-creation in which the loser and his servants are the ruler and the agents of his law, respectively, we are meant to see fallen existence, which is to say Satan's realm and all the cutting, divisive instruments of evil and of power in our world. What in Rowling's predominant metaphor is, the, as, as, as I talked about earlier, is the Petrine dimension of human life, the law. Reality in the land of the lost is not in the experience of mislaid, its three cities, or the waste, all of which are temporary unless the loser consumes the thing, but up there, you know, up there, you know, the superlunary world of light and love, a much greater plane of existence from which everything is made, which is to say it has its origin, and to which, except in perverse cases like the hobnailed crusher, all created things long to return. Just as Lunchy looks longingly up to the finding hole in the disposable saloon in hope of light descending to claim her, to save her, so the things of the land of the lost all have as their natural and correct orientation an otherworldly focus and a consequent disdain of sorts beyond their fear of the loser for the station in life and world in which they find themselves. They, they, they don't want to be down there. They want to be up there. This is to, to, to risk insulting our listeners, perhaps by you know by pointing out the obvious, a story depiction of the traditional or theocentric understanding of man in the world, in which you know man is an image of God, a shadow of his greater self, an iconic quality most evident in his soul. He's created by the word of God, his logos, and having something of this creative aspect of the light of the world within him, that's, that's, that's from the prologue to John, man's purpose and destiny via the creator's design is to live intentionally in hope and happiness, to foster both his communion with up there via the creative principle of selfless love, and in this to ensure his return to the world of light above the shadow lands of this temporal life. Rolling in this charming Christmas story smuggles the traditional idea of human life and its origin and end in God through Christ past the sleeping dragons of our de facto atheist age and its myriad, myriad loss adjusters. They're, they're, the law adjusters are all around us, man. They're, they're policing the internet. They're everywhere. If that weren't enough, we have specifically Jack's being a second Dante traveling through the Commedia's three dimensions, which is to say an explicitly Christian allegory of the soul's journey to perfection in the spirit. With his guides, the Christmas pig, Der Pig and Santa as parallels to Dante's Virgil, Beatrice and St. Bernard as Evan Willis gave us, you know, Jack journeys from the agonies of this life in the forest dark, the straightforward path having been lost, to the beatific vision of salvific, sanctifying, spiraling light, the white rose beyond paradise. This end is prefigured in Christmas Pig by the snow which swirled against the blackening sky outside his window while Jack waited for the house to fall completely silent. The night he enters the land of the lost, 
as well as by his experiences with Derpig, Mum, and the recycling bin. Just as Rowling told Direct she had done with Harry Potter, though, this Christian every man and his hero is given certain messianic traits quite deliberately. Jack saves the things in the loser's lair, and by extension, all things in the land of the lost, by being that person who descended from heaven in love for fallen creation, objects his love brought into their alivened or animated existence. He becomes their means to escape death and the loser's dominion by becoming the locus of their hope and faith of their greater life. Jack, unlike Dante and his vision of the white rose, becomes the cause of the spiraling light that literally lifts up the least of things, the surplus refuse, into the up there of heaven. The loser's anger with the things who cry out, not the boy, is the story figure of the petron voices of this world that want all believers in God's love to despise their creator and any longing they feel for him as childish. What properly should be hatred of the absolute as the cause of their current condition. Again, for future shows, we'll talk about all the Christ figures inside the story, right? I mean, obviously, I mean, Jack's not the only one, just as Harry Potter is only the principal one in his series. A replacement, to put down a marker, is akin to a ransom, a la the Space Trilogy character, in being a redeeming sacrifice to make good on a failing, a kind of payment to make atonement, especially with respect to the Blue Bunny and his resurrection experience. To put down just another marker here, as I, I, I want to close the Christmas Pig's allegorical dimension, the Christmas setting of the story, as with the Nativity of Christ, has its root power not, not in the birth of the Savior, essential as Jack's incarnation as a thing by his choice to descend into the lesser realm to save DP is, but the Paschal, or the Easter symbolism of the book. Christ becomes a man that man might become God, according to Athanasian formula. Christ is born on the night of miracles and lost causes, so the incarnate Logos will in the end die without sin, beguiling the beguiler, right? Read, read your Beatrice Groves. And thereby, by doing this, he becomes the means in that death and return to life, not to mention his harrowing of hell, the spoiling of Hades, he becomes the means to the human potential for a eternal life as members of his mystical body, his risen mystical body. It is this membership that the loser apes and is plastering the dismembered remains of the things from whose bodies he has sucked the aliven bit to his exterior self, his Luciferian mechanistic body. Easter is the heart of Christmas pig, right? I mean, this, this, this is such a powerful Christian allegory. I, 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 I could go on and on, and I have gone on and on. If you want to read the uh, quadrigal reading of Christmas Pig, it's posted at Albert Sebastian. You, you can get all the psychomachia reading about what happens inside the confrontation with King Power, about all the, all the faculties of soul that are represented and what hope and faith are. I mean, I, I've done that. I'm not going to do that here. We're already way over time, I think. <laughs> but I, 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 I do want to talk about one symbol specifically that people probably still, maybe, maybe, maybe not, you know, people take down their Christmas trees, right, around around New Year's. I don't know when people take down, in the UK, when, when what, what's the story with Christmas trees in the UK? Uh, it depends. We're getting more and more like America. So, so um, very traditionally, 
um, the decorations should go up on Christmas Eve. Yay! Remain remain up for the twelve days of Christmas, and then shortly after New Year is uh, is taken down again. Uh, more and more, you will see. It, it's still fairly rare to see decorations before December, but usually one or two weeks into December, most people will have their decorations up. Yeah, well, we're we're still way ahead of you, Nick. We're 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 getting back to Halloween now with Christmas trees. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but seriously, yeah, you're right. That I mean, the tradition is the tree the tree the tree may be up, but it's not decorated until Christmas Eve. Then the twelve days of Christmas, which bring us to Theophany and and Photismos or Enlightenment, you know, the baptism of Christ. Um, I, so I hope people, you know, if you if you get this up properly, Nick, you know, this you put you put our Christmas you know, big tree up before New Year's. Maybe people still have their Christmas trees up. The, you know, the, the, the most important, perhaps, and certainly the most neglected of rolling symbolism inside Christmas pig is the symbol of the tree. R- rolling has used this before in her work. It's, it's the symbol of the wor- world axis, the vertical image of reality, which is it's, it's invisible, chthonic roots, and multiple states of being living in correspondence visible in its branches. Sorry, that's 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 symbolism 101, the, the tree, right? That, that vertical image. The, the Christmas tree, almost always a pine tree with a neat, you know, near uniformity spiraling outward and downward from the star or angel at the top, repre- which, which, which represents superlunary reality, is especially powerful in this role, hence its association with nativity the descent and appearance in the created world of the word or logos of God. Rolling situates the entire Christmas pig story around and beneath the Christmas tree in Jack and Judy's home. It, it's Holly's knocking down of the tree, which, you know, I, I have my own conspiracy theory about that, that, that she that she didn't, I mean, it's mysterious. You know, accomplished gymnasts, as a rule, don't lose their balance when standing on a chair, right? That, that, but I, I think she knocked it down when... She, she had to cover the fact that, that the toilet paper roll thing had been chewed up and she'd thrown it down trying to put her own toy at the top. I mean, that her knocking down on the tree, though, brings on the inciting incident of DP's defenestration, right? Without the tree coming down, we don't get the trip to, to get another angel. Jack and CP are then lost beneath the tree. The first chapter in the Land of the Lost is titled Beneath the Tree, in case you missed that, right? Though the tree itself is never mentioned in that chapter. And Jack returns to the Land of the Living through the portal of the tree thanks to Santa's shaking of the tree to find broken angel. Okay? The the tree is the central symbol of Christmas pig because its primary message and story is that the visible, tangible world of everyday existence, the horizontal realm, is not the only or the primary level of being. Jack and CP's descent from beneath the tree, akin to broken angels from the tree top, and any angelic messenger, the Greek angelos means messenger, any angelic messenger to our world from above, it, this is a revelation of a hierarchical universe in which greater realities that create and inform the lower with their being and meaning exist above them. Jack and CP's adventures down below, beneath the tree, is a revelation of life properly lived. That is, seeing created sensible existence as a shadow dependency on the eternal love above us up there, 
that gives temporal life its substance. I mean, Rowling has done this again before. She's done this, she did this in Harry Potter. She's doing it again in Cormoran Strike. The Deathly Hallows symbol is interpreted at the four levels of meaning by various characters in the Hogwarts saga, but its, its most sublime depth is revealed to Harry in the barrier of Alistair Moody's mad eye. Each of the symbol's three parts, symbols on themselves, are in play there. The eye is the circle. She calls the symbol, you know, the Deathly Hallows symbol, a triangular eye several times. The, the cross Harry inscribes on the tree is the mirror quality of that symbol's left and right aspects. And the old gnarled oak tree in the shadow of which Harry buries the eye is the world axis, the vertical line in the symbol. And see Deathly Hallows lectures for much more on that, okay? And, I, and, I've, and I've discussed at Hogwarts Professor the importance of oak trees in the Strike series, which is embedded in the names of the Zeus and Hermes figures of those books, Johnny Rokeby and Carl Oakton, both of whose names are about the oak tree. This, the, the, the tree, you know, that world axis, in a way, is a symbol of symbolism because it's the representation of the essence of traditional understanding, not a dreary otherworldliness, but a worldview that grasps that the visible world is not self-generating or explicable apart from a greater reality. Our existence is informed or alivened by a level of being beyond our own. It's, it's a vertical perspective that the tree, and especially the Christmas tree, represents. It's an icon decorated with lights, in most cases, of the words self-revelation. The light of the world become man, a visible, tangible, sacrificial condescension to demonstrate the love from above that informs creation and providing the means to join oneself to him and escape the loser, right? We're all trying to escape the loser. The traditional worldview has three essential signatures. Let's go through them. It has an ontologically vertical orientation, correspondences that reflect the lower realm's dependence on the higher, and the human noetic capacity, this, this, this cardiac intelligence, to perceive the reference of these greater realities in their symbolic representatives on this plane. The tree is the symbol of the hierarchy of, of being, the ground of this worldview, hence its central place and function in Christmas, Christmas pig. The land of the lost is, is an allegorical representation of this world. You know, the land of the lost seems to be the fantasy world, but it's really Rowling's depiction of this world that we experience properly understood. It's the loser's domain, just as our own is ruled by the delusions of Satan the deceiver. The lost adjusters are his willing servants who insist on the law being kept rather than justice served, whose correspondents are the Peter institutions and the lackeys of this world. In this land of the lost, however, every axiological measure is about the love from above. As the ticket-dispensing tin opener explained to the haughty earrings in mislaid, still probably my favorite characters, those earrings. You know, diamonds are plastic. It's all the same down here. We'll soon know how much you're worth up there, right? It's basically how much love you're worth. The lost adjusters at allocation and mislaid have a list of lost objects from which they read a judgment of that worth up there that decides anything's assignment to areas roughly corresponding to hell, purgatory, and heaven. This judgment is conditional, however, on anything's continuing to be lost. When found up there and appreciated, 
light appears from a finding hole in the ceiling of the, of the world down there that draws that lost object back into the greater reality of the land of the living. Rowling is, is, is basically saying, you know, I'm, she's not urging people to live in fear of, of the judgment of the allocators, right? She's, she's urging people to identify themselves with sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love. As, as men and women do that, and that that will bring them into contact with the greatest reality human beings can know, that reality that brings them into existence. Just a pure joy, John. It really is. And again, we're just, we're not just skimming the surface. There's important stuff in there, but until you get to the city of the mist and the, and the, and the Isle of the, of the Blessed or whatever, you, you're just really beginning to get what she's about here. I want to talk about Rowling's life again. I want to take this back to the lake, right? I, 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 we've, had, we've had our time in the shed there. I, I, people maybe feel they just got whipped in the shed here, right? Um, this golden thread that runs through Rowling's work is this Christ-like love of a mother for her children. It's, it's, it's really where she lives, I think, as an artist. And, and we don't need to do inductive speculation for this, right? I mean, what, what is the link to Rowling's life experience about a mother's love for her children. Well, I think it's that's that's foundational and admittedly so as well. For, from the the earliest of Rowling's interviews, that, that the presence or absence of a, a mother's love for a child is central, with the exception of her father reading *Wind in the Willows* when she had measles. It was Anne Rowling. It was Anne who read to her as a child. It was. Anne's love of literature and books led to Rowling's life ambition of becoming uh, an author herself. Anne, who died at that most pivotal of moments. So Joe had just started writing Harry Potter, the, the life-changing book. She just started plotting that, and Anne passes away. It's her child. Jessica and Joe's love for, for Jessica that, that gave Joe the strength to survive her disastrous first marriage and also the strength to, to survive through that, not just survive it, but to have the strength to complete the Philosopher's Stone, to, to find an agent, find a, a publisher, and, and finally set herself up to become the person that she is. Joe jo has, has said many times, that if her mother had not died when she had, Harry Potter would have been a very different book. I think if Joe had not had Jessica when she did, I think Harry Potter would have been a, a very different book. But I think that's true for all of her works. It's that love that she found from her mother. It's the loss of that love when her mother died. And it's the love she found with her daughter and subsequently uh, her, her husband and her, her other children is, is the, the foundation for Rowling's life. And as I've already said, her, her life is at least 50% of her inspiration, of her, of her late work in her, in her books. What about her philanthropic endeavors too? I mean, we're, we're talking about that this maternal love informs her artistry you know, her, her vocation as a writer. Doesn't it also inform all of her charitable work as well? 
I think it does because I think that love for a mother and that mother's love for a child um, is is absolutely central to what she's been doing with Lumos. That that is is all about the harms that can come to a child when they are deprived of that familiar that that mother's love. Um, all of her work with um, single parent families, the direct support that she's given through her Volant uh, charity to, to mothers and families that are uh, in distress, principally in Scotland. The work now that she's doing in terms of, of, of uh, feminism uh, and uh, the Beerus Place shelter, which, which is for women who suffer domestic violence to be given um, counseling and, and support and, and shelter away from men is all based around that love of a child for a mother and a mother's love for a child. Just, I just realized this, maybe, maybe it's implicit in what you said, but I'll make it explicit, is that the Volant, um, what's the actual name of her MS um, research? So, so she she has funded uh, the uh, Anne Rowling uh, Regenerative Neurology Clinic. I think I've got that right. Um, Anne Rowling Regenerative Neurology Clinic. But, but there's also, but this is underneath a grouping in her charities. It's called Volant something, isn't it? That, um, yeah. So 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 her her main charities are, are split in two. So so of course the biggie is is the Lumos. Um, Foundation, which is is um, her charity, and she she is is still very much involved with with a strategy and administration for that. Things like the Anne Rowling Regenerative Clinic. Um, once once the money has been donated by J.K. Rowling, then um, it's pretty much hands off. And then there's the Valance Charity. Now the Valance Charity was her, her very first charitable. Um, foundation and it was largely a mechanism to cope with the many many begging letters that she received when she was newly wealthy so this has um, initially it was set up so that people uh, who knew about charitable uh, endeavors could intelligently answer those letters so wh where is money worth sending where is it not worth sending um, and now it is an umbrella for, for that and many other causes that she is interested in. So um, it is a grant giving foundation. So if you um, are principally within Scotland um, and you are in need of charitable assistance, then you can approach Valance with a reason for why you would be um, a good candidate to receive charitable assistance. Huh. It's targeted giving principally for families and and mothers and children who are in need of assistance I see the correspondence there but it's hard to miss that right about that's it's essentially a mother's love here right? you know that she has resources and she's going to care for people that need those resources um, I was thinking more about the research though that specifically that MS research yeah. is so that other children, you know, someday won't experience what she experienced at the death of her mother. That they'll, yeah. you know, they'll be able to enjoy their mother's love throughout their life, 
rather than experience the um, cathartic, catastrophic agonies of the death of a parent. Absolutely, and I think that that was a, a an offshoot from Edinburgh University. Um, Rowling had been involved in MS charitable giving for a long time, and that was largely um, uh, in support of people who suffer from MS. And I understand that this was a team of academics from Edinburgh University actually approached Rowling with a pitch. And, and the pitch was, may, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but we, you know, this is a solvable problem. We can make this go away. Uh, all we need to do is find out what are the mechanisms. And it was, it was based on the back of that, that pitch. Uh, and really, is, it's a substantial. So in many tens of millions of pounds in two um, very large lump sums Rowling is given to, to endow uh, this research institute to, to do what they do. Well, if one doubts that uh, maternal love is you know, the, the beating heart of Rowling's work, you know, is, is, is the, is the go-to and primary symbol of Christ inside her books, which are loaded with symbols of Christ. Um, Rowling's charitable efforts, as well as her testimony and interviews about the importance of her experience as a mother and as a child of a loving mother, I think make that pretty hard to, um, that's, 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 a, that's a hard argument to make. I, I can see people resisting these ideas because they, you know, they don't jump off the page at you. But it's almost, I think, at the point where um, it, it'd be like reading Dickens and not saying, boy, there's a lot of unhappy children inside here, right? I mean, <clears throat> this, um, what, what, what's going on inside here with all these kids? Um, that, that Rowling's uh, core identity is as a, as a mother. And, and that's going to be very interesting because obviously uh, Robin Ellicott, for, for serious strikers out there, Robin Ellicott um, is conflicted about you know whether she'll be a mother. That's that's going to be an issue. Uh, I think I think the last three books are going to turn on that reading. I, 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 I just just real quickly here before we speaking of serious strikers, there's a strike moment inside Christmas Pig, right? Which is really weird, right? I mean, we, you, you don't expect for there to be a um, maybe a, a fairly open and and uh, critical marker that that Rowling puts down at a at a uh, high drama moment in Christmas Pig, we get a named character from Cormoran Strike. I mean, this is this isn't like Rowena, you know, Robin. Um, you know, Robin gets takes the name Rowena. I think it was Louise Freeman who who uh, joked that um, if we don't get a uh, uh, if nobody inside Corman Strike hears Rowena and doesn't say Rowena Ravenclaw, we're never going to get a reference to Harry Potter inside these books. I, I, Louise, as usual, is spot on. But uh, I mean that Ivanhoe, right? We we get the Ivanhoe we get reference. The Ivanhoe reference, yeah, right, because that's that's right on the tip of everybody's tongue. Um, <laughs> that's. Uh, we don't get references between series. I mean, obviously, we've got the entire parallel series thing. I mean, Rowling doesn't actually have to say Harry Potter to get a lot of the whole area. I, mean, there's, I think there's a whole section of Strike fandom now that is just consumed by parallel series ideas. It is fun. It is fun. I mean, I, as the person who first spotted it, I can, I can say that, right? 
But that, we don't get names. We don't get names. But in Christmas Pig, we get a Cormoran Strike name. One that we were talking, we one that we were talking about. Is this the segue from episode it's one nice, of our series? You know? That's the obvious link between episode one and episode two <laughs> of Rolling Studies. I'm sure everyone spotted it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. you go ahead. You go ahead and reveal this. <laughs> who who talks about a Corman Strike character inside Christmas Pig? So this is Memory, who is uh, who is a strange character. Oh. <laughs> who recalls uh, her sister? Her her mast her her mistress's sister. Her mistress's sister. That's right. Because memory memory doesn't really have her own memories. She's, yeah. she's, 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 she belongs to her mistress. And again, this is, this is kind of a weird character, right? I mean, you're just like, um, vain beauty is, is just his own. He doesn't think about anybody else's beauty. He's his own beauty, but memory is somebody else's memory. Um, yeah. I, I had a bit of an argument with Patricio about this one because he, he thinks that we can't count on, on, he thinks that memories, memories are, are, um, accurate and i'm saying no that memory's memory you know comes up with all these years 68 years ago my (laughs) my mistress's sister um that that those numbers are just what an adult person does to to make it seem like they actually remember things in detail but they really have totally lost the thread right i mean they're just (laughs) well we we know we know the memory is lost don't we so so um (laughs) that's a given (laughs) <laughs> but th- that's not to say that the memory that was lost was any good that's a... <laughs> before it was lost. I, I guess. Yeah, I guess when it's finally really lost, uh, then you, you get you get its condition when it was lost, right? That's good. So we have the sister Amelia, and we were talking we were talking about sister Amelia in the last episode uh, with our crazy theory that well that Charlotte Campbell was was murdered. So. So is this, do you think, John, this is Charlotte Campbell's memory? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. She, uh, um, you know, Amelia is mentioned three times by memory. And I'm going to have to do this from my poor memory. I, I haven't got this right at hand. But Amelia Louise, which is fascinating to me because my wife's middle name is Louise. You know, it's just like, oh, Rowling is doing it again. She's 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 got John all over the place here. Now she's got Louise. And um, no, please don't send us notes <laughs> saying, John, you're just don't go all Gilderoy on us here any more than you normally do. Uh, 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 Amelia Louise is a wonderful name because it scans. You know, it's antiquated. It's not a common name. I hope I hope people begin naming their children Amelia Louise after this. But me- memory talks about Amelia her her mistress's sister and there's problems there this is the older sister talking about the younger sister one assumes in the first instance that memory shares is about a pig and her memory is of her sister breaking the piggy bank that belongs to her mistress not a happy thing shouldn't be doing that right and uh, we have a we have a clear correspondence in that with with the Cormoran strike things if you're willing to go there in that Amelia Crichton is you know uh, a shopkeeper you know she's an upscale shopkeeper 
but she's she's still got a business that she has to run. And um, Charlotte, for I don't know where Charlotte because they have they share both parents, so it's not like Charlotte has money that Amelia shouldn't also have. Amelia's, you know, in the store in in Running Grave, Charlotte is dating a billionaire, right? And they and she and she's just got divorced, or is it in the process of being divorced from the Earl of Croy? Right. I mean, she and she's 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 got money. And Amelia probably wants a piece of that money. And I, I think she has to be hoping that if Charlotte had, had really hooked up successfully, I mean, isn't she engaged to this guy or there's rumors of engagement that Charlotte's going to come into some absolutely major money and then Charlotte blows it. Charlotte decides to attack this guy, you know, cut open his face. I mean, there's a, there's a reason for anger there. She's broken the piggy bank. You know, that, that of all piggy banks, the goose that laid the golden egg here, you know, Charlotte has managed to strangle it. You can see Amelia being a little angry there. Anyway, so there's the first reference that you can see Amelia Louise um, being a problem there. And then the second one, I believe the memory is, is that Amelia, Amelia Louise, her master's sister, mistress's sister, lies. Well, I mean, I think it's Strike that says that Charlotte has the ability that Charlotte only lies when she's breathing. You know that this is this is a you know if her lips are moving, she's lying. Um, and and one has to wonder if Amelia doesn't also have that congenital gift, you know, of of being able to lie shamefacedly, and how, you know that we don't know anything about Charlotte's death. Um, I except think if Amelia. Amelia if Amelia does tend to the lie, then I don't think it would ever be shamefacedly. So she she exudes <laughs> competence and confidence. That's right. I think she would be a much more accomplished liar if that's what she's doing. Well, she certainly, I mean, Strike accepts everything she says. Now, that that's largely because, as I argued in our last episode, Strike is totally on board with Suicide Charlotte. You know, and, and, and this is a, a correction here, Nick. I'm going to correct you here. You said this is our theory. This is your theory <laughs> in which all the rest of us have tagged on to whatever. None of us saw this, but I think you're right. But anyway, this is your theory. Um, I'll take I'll take blame for it in that I'm really I'm really behind it. But I, you know, seriously, this is your your insight. Okay, so in, in the third thing that Amelia Louise talks about is that years ago. You know, if, so, so we had 85 years ago, she owned a piggy bank and then she was caught lying 80 years ago. And then the movie night was 69 years ago and they and they went to see the fugitive. Um, there's there, there's no way we can do that. There's a television series for the fugitive in 63. I guess you could you could make that work somehow with 69 years ago. Um that the the movie adaptation, the Harrison Ford one, I think is ninety three. Um, anyway, it, it's it, where that comes from, we don't know. Okay, um, I'm not sure what to do with that. You know, in terms of them going to see the fugitive. But I, if I had to bet the farm, if I had to like say, okay, here's all my chips forward, I would say that it's going to be something we learn in Strike Ten. Right, that that maybe Strike is a fugitive from the law, and he has to prove his innocence. 
um, that would that would be what rolling is giving us in memories reference to Amelia that maybe somehow Amelia I mean obviously we're just spitballing here maybe Amelia lies to the to the press and sets up strike as Charlotte's murderer you know that that uh, oh well whatever I, I, I know we're just spitballing here but I'm gonna I'm gonna pin my my flag to the mast here and oh say if any of this pans out even in the slightest this is Olympic level foreshadowing. I mean, not not just in a prior book series, in a, in an unrelated children's book. Seriously, uh, there's there's a, an author named Dan Simmons that one of my favorite writers. I've read almost everything he's written. Um, I've read almost all of his standalone books, and he does this. He may, Stephen King does this as well. Um, makes references to characters from other books that really seemingly have no relationship to the book that you're currently in with that thing, okay? Um, and that's, that's, that's a wonder. That's an absolute delight when you're a fan of the author. Rowling says that she began thinking about this book in 2012 when she was in the heart of her planning of the Strike series. Come on, Nick. I just, again, I, yeah. love, I love the idea of her saying... <laughs> Amelia is lying. It's about the piggy bank, and we're going to see Strike on the run as a fugitive. And I'm going to drop those three memories in here. When everybody is discounting, you know, beauty, vanity is, is saying, ah, forget about your crazy memory, you know. It just seems like she's a, an old lady that doesn't, maybe Rowling's having, maybe she's having memory issues, right? Who knows? Maybe she's afraid of growing old. She's at, she's at, she's at that age. But anyway, she, she puts in this character maybe the clue to what's going to happen inside Cormoran Strike. I love it. I, I guess I, I want to I close here. Not with memory and Amelia, though I love that that whole thing. Is I want to I close with Christmas Carol, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to say it again. This, this, is, this is perhaps her greatest achievement. A miniature. It's her shortest work ever. This is briefer than Philosopher's Stone or the Ichabod, okay? It's got a cameo of her most important themes. It's her most sophisticated artistry and the most powerful meaning about life, art, and faith. This is a concentrated introduction to everything that serious readers love about the world's most popular writer. Owen Barfield is supposed to have said about C.S. Lewis that everything he thinks is evident in anything he writes. Everything that Rowling does is present in Christmas Pig, okay? And, and Christmas Pig is a Christmas story, you know, in the genre, in the Dickensian tradition of such things. He wrote, he wrote 21 Christmas stories in addition to Christmas Carol. But I think like the best of these, it really isn't about nativity in any exclusive sense, any more than Christ's incarnation or birth were the end game of his temporal life, as I've talked about. I mean, while Christmas in the U.S. has largely been co-opted by capitalist forces and consumer custom to become the most celebrated holiday, nativity in the traditional church ranks beneath Pascha, Easter, but also beneath Pentecost, Theophany, and the Annunciation, right? Pascha is, or Easter is the feast of feasts among the Orthodox, the center of the annual calendar, and the model after which every Sunday liturgy is celebrated. I mean, the Russian word for Sunday is resurrection. You know, I mean, after this, after 80 years of, of an atheist regime, 
they had to say, you know, the you know, the Atheist Youth League is meeting on resurrection. You know, it's just, I mean, it's just in, in, in America, Easter, I love this. East, I don't love it. It's, 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 it's terrible. But in America, Easter ranks beneath Halloween and Valentine's Day in the ranking of holidays people celebrate. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, anyway, I, I will risk being accused once more of sermonizing, you know, this being the season to say that what importance Christian Christmas has is in its paschal content and meaning. This is true of Christmas pig as well. Christ's birth is celebrated because it is the appearance of the Lord's incarnation, right? It's made visible, right? This is the Logos' sacrificial descent from heaven to becoming the atoning sacrifice at Pascha and our means as human beings to eternal life. You know, we're, we're, we're going to escape from the land of the lost here, right? Rowling inserts this most clearly in Christmas Pig via the Blue Bunny side story and the sacrificial choices made by CP and by Jack. First, boy, first by Pajama Boy's decision to enter the land of the lost and then by his surplus saving work in the loser's lair, you know, his harrowing of Hades. I mean, I've talked about Blue Bunny and we're jumped around here like, like a scared rabbit. How's that? That works, right? <laughs> but, but that the bunny plays such a central role and that Rowling has used rabbit rabbits as Easter symbols in troubled blood and perhaps as early as her first work, you know, rabbit. All that makes me conclude that this Paschal message is at the heart of her Christmas story. A rabbit's fecundity makes it an apt symbol of Easter, abundant life with eternal life especially when paired with chocolate, which, as I've talked about, in the UK has an inner light Quaker message in the nougat, right? As we have it from both Rowling's discussion of toys as magical, transitional objects and her testimony about the treasured plush turtle made by her mother and its consoling, unchanging reality, those are all her words. She's being explicit here as she has not been since the beginning, middle, and end of Harry Potter, that a mother's unconditional, selfless, and sacrificial love is her go-to symbol for the otherworldly love that is our hope for victory over death, even hope itself, right? Her insertion of herself and her daughter in this story at the point of Blue Bunny's rescue is a fun marker that this part of the book really happened. But also, I think this is what her books are really about, what they aim to do. Christmas Pig rose out of Rowling's late, no doubt, in answer to her own digestion of the challenges of a blended family and of being the main provider and public face of the Murray clan. She has elevated that inspiration, though it remains an important part of the story's service and moral layers, to her usual allegorical and sublime heights, a psychomachia journey of the soul in its transformation and spirit and elision with logos and its symbol of a mother's love. For anyone who's listening to this, who finds him or herself on the waste of the lamented, on this feast of the Lord's nativity, or it's, it's after mass in the 12 days of Christmas. I hope that the allegory of the blue bunny and its possible meaning is a source of some consolation to you as it has been to me. You know, whether our mothers were loving or not, we all know that such an absolute love exists on this plane of reality and in the transcendent realm of which our world is only a reflection. God bless us, everyone, as Tommy, Tiny Tim observed, and may he grant us to know and incarnate his love in our lives and hearts as a guarantee of our victory 
over death. Merry Christmas, Nick. And thank you for your fellowship and for the time we spend together exploring Rowling's artistry. Merry Christmas to you, John. Thank you. And that was beautiful. We will be back with everyone uh, in a fortnight or two weeks' time. If you have any questions for us, please do drop a message either at the Hogwarts Professor Substack or you can ask a question at the Rowling Studies website.